how much of that is what if and how much of that is uh, knowledge that you've attained from your blue friends? Depressions formed in the ice sheets and they filled up with water. And it is really strange when you think about how many of the really solid ancient mythologies suggest that the way to get to the other world is not off of the earth, but in toward the center of the earth. BC. Atlantis, Atlantis. Depressions formed in the ice sheets and they filled up with water. Oh no, we don't we don't want all the personal information about your tyrant family anymore so that we can extort them and use them as leverage against you. Uh, we gave that up. We're the reformed Scientologists. You know, it, it always worked. 10,500 BC. Atlantis, Atlantis. Today is an awesome episode with our good friend Craven Wolfson, and I just wanted to let you guys know, on the Patreon, we're going to be doing a monthly show with Craven, since every time we talk with him, it's so splendid, it's so amazing, and you guys seem to love it, so we're going to bring him back for a monthly show on the Patreon. If you guys want to support us, the best way to do that is through Patreon. Three bucks a month. Go over there, check it out. See all the sweetness, the sweet juice that's there. All of the gnosis. Oh, yeah, yeah. Also, don't forget to join the family group chat on Telegram, where the Fire Tribe conjoins and coagulates within its mixture, the mixture of community, the cohesion of collaboration. All links will be in the show notes enjoy today's bonus episode but you won't hear this lovely voice anymore because i couldn't make it but dan holds it down as he does with his sweet crown of judgment and justice enjoy today's rising from the ashes bonus episode with harif and holfson 
Hey, what's up, Fire Tribe? Welcome to Rising from the Ashes. I'm Daniel Naki Dan. Roman is Roman, so he's roaming around. And uh, he might join us a little bit later, maybe not. Uh, but today on the show, we got Raven Wolfson back. And we're going to be talking about some antediluvian ideas and some of his uh, epiphanies that he had after the last show. So how you doing, Raven? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Fantastic, man. We just had a cool interview this morning with uh, Scott Crichton, who uh, wrote like four different books on Egypt. So I got Egypt on the brain. <laughs> yeah, I've been, uh, I mean, it's not new news or anything, but it has been, uh, it's been coming up a lot lately. I've noticed in my various feeds um, the discussion of tool marks, mm -hmm. uh, especially what look like mechanical tool marks in stones on the Giza plateau. And, you know, that's a, that, I think that is not divergent because I think uh, there is, there's a lot of evidence worldwide of some higher technology than we would anticipate from ancient cultures. Right. Mm -hmm. Whether you're talking about Pumapunku or whether you're talking about Giza, like it's, you know, there's a lot. Um, there are a lot of questions. I'll just say question. How's that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so last time we talked, um, you had texted me and said that you had a couple of epiphanies after the show and you wanted to share some of uh, some of your gleanings. So uh, what happened, man? <laughs> Well, um, boy, that's, that's tough because, uh, <laughs> I've had a lot of epiphanies since then, <laughs> uh, which specific ones I'm, I don't, I'm not quite sure. Um, I'd have to go back, but, uh, well, one of them, I think I might, I think I actually talked about this on the show and that is the sort of the epiphany about the, the fire and ice structure. Yeah, which is that um, using the the chart here, uh -huh. um, the way I've always imagined it is the way I started painting this. But fire, fire and, and ice are separate from each other like this. Yeah, where I actually think now that ice is the center and fire is the is the outside. Uh -huh. So it's actually a sphere with a center, and that's pretty significant because that creates a very different dynamic um, in how the whole tetrahedral uh, tension structure works, right? Because yeah. what it says is that the center is the static, the center is the solid, and the exterior is the, is the, is the dynamic, you know, is the uh, kinetic, right? Uh -huh. uh, like a like a proton, like a proton and uh, and an electron. So uh, I did find out one thing that was kind of interesting, because of course I'm very interested in this idea of hyperspheres, and and the hypersphere is the the, the dual sphere that exists in a double tetrahedron, right? Mm -hmm. Double um, reverse tetrahedron, and. One of the things I just looked up, just out of curiosity, was are there ever hydrogen atoms with two electrons? 
And it turns out there are. <laughs> and they are, uh, they are components of the atmospheres of stars. Hmm. That's where they occur, where you'll have a hydrogen atom that has two electrons. Those occur in the, in the chronosphere, essentially, of stars, of the sun and stars, which is in a weird way plays right into what I'm saying. <laughs> because that says that the star, it's recognizing the possibility that, you know, as above, so below, right? Mm -hmm. The star is, in fact, a hypersphere. That stars are hypersphere. The sun is a hypersphere. So, anyway, that was one. Um, Does that relate to like having a, a binary star or being in a binary star system? Because a lot of people talk about that other star systems have binary uh, to like suns or whatnot, but our star system only has the one sun, but some people think there might be a second sun way off in the, in the distance. What, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I've heard that argument, um, before, um, in fact, I've heard that about stars, that there is a potentially a dark star in our own system yeah. that is also orbiting, you know, in a relationship. Um, of course, there's the whole Nibiru yeah, exactly. uh, conversation, right? But generally speaking, binary star systems are talking about two stars that are in relation to each other. So uh, Sirius A and Sirius B, for instance, mm -hmm. right? Where you have, um, you have the, uh, the dark star that is affecting the, they're both affecting each other's orbits, something that the Dogon tribe in, uh, yeah. in North Africa recognized um, and that there was a cycle to it, right? So, I'm, I, th this is, I mean, this is like the idea of a hypersphere is that the two things exist in the same space at the same time, but out of phase with each other. Like, almost like a star and an anti-star, right? That mm. exists in the same location, but dimensionally different states, right? Kind of like matter and antimatter, kind of that idea. What right? would that be in our star so, system? Well, the what it would suggest and what I love about it, in fact, yeah. my, going back, few episodes my my blue friends um the information they were giving me suggests that i'll just use the earth instead of a star mm -hmm. so it would suggest that our planet is a hypersphere and that the hypersphere of our planet um, we have an experience of it but there's another world right here right oh. here right now there's another world but the question is is that world if you could actually move from this world to that world to the other the other land the other realm it's in mythology all over the place right mm -hmm. the underworld etc if you could move to that other space would it have the same sky would the stars be different in other words is it actually is in other words is every planet every star every black hole every everything that has this basic geometry associated with it 
are they actual intersections between like cross-dimensional intersections? Is that is is that is is that what's going on? That's that's the question. Um, and it is really strange when you think about how many of the really solid ancient mythologies suggest that the way to get to the other world is not off of the earth but in toward the center of the earth whether it's the whether it's hades whether it's the anunnaki whether it's um whether it's persephone you know uh, going into the underworld whether it's is an army going into the underworld or is you know that they're always going inside and of course my basic geometry would suggest that the intersection is at the center that's where the actual crossover point is is in the center where you could transit from one tetrahedron to the other tetrahedron. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, <laughs> have you ever heard of the vitriol or the meaning of vitriol? Um, uh, like the alchemical meaning of vitriol? Possibly the synonym. Because I know that that uh, in alchemy there was the oil of vitriol, um, oh. which I believe is vinegar. No, uh, I can't remember. I, I did a whole bunch of research into alchemy because I did the, I built this whole set uh, one time for a film, mm -hmm. and it was a it was the cosmic mortician's lair, and so I made all these bottles with all these labels of uh, things from alchemy and different different sources. Um, and there was an oil of vitriol. And I'm trying to remember what the oil of vitriol was, like what we call it now. And I think it might have been vinegar, but I'm not positive. Uh, it, it says here, if you've ever been in a Masonic chamber of reflection, you may have seen vitriol or similar symbology. Vitriol as a word can refer to chemistry and mean sulfuric acid and related compounds which eat away or attack other substances. But as an acronym, V-I-T-R-I-O-L stands for a sentence in Latin, Vasita interiora tare rectificando and venus occultum lapidum. My, my uh, Latin is not very good. So in, in English, it means <laughs> visit the interior of the earth and purifying you will find the hidden stone in English. That is interesting because, and that actually makes a lot of sense, because the uh, oracle at Delphi, one of the elements of that space, probably because it was volcanic in origin, was that there were gases and things that were coming out of the ground there that the seer would expose themselves to, mm. which would kill them over a period of time. Mm -hmm. And we do know that sulfuric acid is one of the things, sulfuric, you know, uh, sulfur gas, sulfurous gases come out of volcanic vents. So that actually does make sense in a weird way that you would, you would, uh, you could go through a purification process, and that goes into the whole idea of everything from saunas to to bathing in hot springs, um, mm. which all have that kind of um, 
there's often a sulfuric or sulfurous smell, right? Yeah. Which was believed to be curative uh, in many cases. Um, so, yeah, it, 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 that's a very interesting information. I, I love talking to you guys, well, <laughs> you, but you guys, because uh, it's very thought provoking. I, I always come away from these conversations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With things to think about. Yeah, uh, shout um, out to uh, Mario, uh, Symbolic Studies, for for asking me about vitriol the other day. So I had to look it up, and uh, and then that, then we talked a little bit about it, and I found it interesting. I kind of came to a con- different conclusion of maybe uh, purifying yourself to be able to go into inner earth, or maybe only a certain group of people could go into the inner earth because they had to have a bloodline, and then then once you get into the inner earth, you can discover the knowledge that has been kept there uh, for uh, throughout mankind or whatever, something similar to that. Interesting. Well, you know, there's a long history, as you're aware, of, of going into the earth for answers. In mm-hmm. fact, there are those who suggest that that's what the caves at Lascaux and Altamura and, and uh, other ancient cave painting caves like that were potentially about. Um, uh, and if you go even to the cenotes in uh, the Yucatan, where they've now found that there are entire underground cavern systems that are underwater that you that actually all potentially relate to the Mayan underworld, mm-hmm. right? There is this, we have this strong thing about going uh, and it's funny because uh, it's very terrifying to a lot of people. Like a lot of people, the idea of, of the claustrophobia yeah. and the darkness, you know, uh, some say, ah, oh, womb-like. I go, yeah, well, if the womb was like that, where do you want to get out? You know, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> you could also take it very spiritual, too. And, and by purifying your brain, you can go inside your own self and uh, seek clarity or you know spirituality nirvana true yeah well and that and that's that's you know if you think of it almost from a buddhist perspective Mm -hmm. what would be the point of going into a cave especially a dark cave talk you if you really want to experience um loss of self loss of ego right what a great place to go do that where you're, it's almost a sensory deprivation in a way. Right? Yeah. But without safety, like <laughs> sensory deprivation, you're in a tank and, and uh, it's all very controlled. Caverns are not. Caverns can, caverns can do all sorts of things. You know? And it's very dark in caverns. Like we're talking no light at all if you don't bring it with you, right? Mm-hmm. And then... The only thing, usually there's sound, whether it's movement of air, dripping of water, right? Occasional movement of rocks. And it's not uncommon for caverns, even deep caverns, to be somewhat inhabited by life, which means mm-hmm. if you're sitting there in the dark, you get to listen to things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kentucky you know, whether it's whether it's bats or <laughs> yeah well or, or 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 whether it's bats or or insects or whatever I mean there are mm-hmm. things that live you know in in the, in the deep 
places of the world to quote Tolkien. <laughs> right? So yeah. Line that Gandalf says when he's talking about his encounter with the Balrog, right? He says the, the, the things that haunt the deep places of the world. Something. Anyway, um, well, you want to talk about uh, talk about this whole flood myth thing? Yeah, man, I would love to hear your perspective because I'm I'm sure it's a lot different than most. <laughs> I mean, it might be. I mean, you know, the truth is, I mean, I've 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 looked the same source material probably as everybody else has you know there's there are different echelons of the source material Mm -hmm. (laughs) right um but just to make my perspective clear um because there are kind of there are different ways you can approach it one one way you can approach the subject is um geologically that's one way you can you can talk about it the, the sort of the a Graham Hancock, Robert Schock sort of approach. Um, there, of course, is also the folklore. Let's just call it, let's call it what it is, right? Mm-hmm. There's folklore about it. Um, and it is interesting that, that folklore does seem to be many places in the world. It, it's, it's, it's not... Uh, localized but i i would like to talk a little bit about let's disambiguate some of the source material because uh, and it's funny that this we were going to have this conversation because earlier today i was scrolling through instagram or someplace and uh, there was a meme talking about flood myth mm-hmm. and it said noah it's it you know it, it referenced hindu buddhist um hindu buddhist christian and one other one and it said christian and it said noah i went i really wish people would do their research even little research (laughs) even small amounts of research noah is not christian noah is jewish that's judaic that's Mm -hmm. judaic that got translated into christianity which of course is very funny because if you listen to christ he says all that stuff in the past we don't pay attention to that. The Old Testament doesn't matter. Only the New Testament matters. But nobody <laughs> listens to that anymore anyway, which is very funny. But um, so first of all, I want to start by saying that I almost completely discount several tellings of the story only because I know that they're derivative from earlier sources. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the Judaic story is not Judaic. The Judaic story is the Sumerian story. That's right. what it is. It's from, right? So the whole Noah part of the story is them appropriating the story and then adding their own spin to it. So that right there makes me go, okay, let's just throw that out just for now. And then the Buddhist story, let's talk about that. Buddhism has only existed since 600 BC. Therefore, anything that's a Buddhist story is a, probably a Hindu story right. that got translated, or possibly a, a Tibetan story, but probably a, a, a Hindu story. So, um, and then, of course, I, I have the same argument about Islam. Islam has only existed since about 700 AD. There, ha- there is no ancient Islam. That is a nonsensical idea. It is a brand new cult. It's newer than the other cults. Oh, I'm sorry, religions. It's the newer, they're all cults as far as I'm concerned. 
but um, <laughs> well, they are. They're all cults. Yeah. Um, they're just it, it, the only reason we don't consider them to be cults is that they have lots of followers and they've been around. They're, they're cults that have persisted. Yes. <laughs> so persistent cults apparently don't count as cults, yeah. although it would be argued that Mormonism has existed for some time and a lot of people consider it to be a religion, but I would call it a cult. <laughs> it's very culty. In it, and I'm in the heart of it right now. I'm literally six blocks from the temple. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, and then Scientology is another one. Everybody agrees that's a cult. But if it's if it sat around and, you know, was allowed to ferment for, uh, you know, 500 years, uh, people go, ah, yes, the great religion of St. Hubbard. You know, and uh, oh no, we don't we don't want all the personal information about your tyrant family anymore, so that we can extort them and use them as leverage against you. Uh, we gave that up. We're the reformed Scientologists. You know, it, it always works like that. It's very silly, <laughs> but um, but the point is that what are our actual sources in terms of the folklore? Well, clearly the most famous one outside of outside of uh, the Noah story is is Atlantis. That's the most famous. And our pretty much our entire body of information about Atlantis comes from Plato and the writings of Plato, who claimed to but he claimed a lot of things that have been questioned. But he the the, the problem with Plato is that it's hard to because so much of what he wrote was allegorical. It's hard to know if even characters like Socrates and that were part of, that were documented in Plato's writings were ways to talk about modern circumstances at the time, contemporary circumstances at the time, but use possibly remembered folklore to make points about contemporary society, whatever that is. Okay. Yeah. So it's a little difficult to know. Although, um, where now, just really quickly, where did Plato claim to get his information? Well, supposedly it came from Herodotus, and Herodotus had spent time on the Nile talking to Egyptian priests, and that's supposedly where the story came from Egyptian priests to Herodotus, and then to Plato, who wrote, you know, Critias and uh, too many words, names, Greek names for me to remember right now. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. Uh, and there's actually another piece of material. There was another thing that made a reference to Atlantis that he wrote. I can't remember what it is. Anyway, I have to say that, um, have you heard of what's called the Eye of the Sahara? Yeah, the rechat structure. Which I have to say does match the geography described in Plato's account closer than anything else I've ever seen. I mean, it's got the Atlant mm -hmm. Atlas Mountains to the north. It's got the rings. It's got a freshwater spring at the center. I mean, it's, it goes on and on and on as far as the, the details. Biggest problem being that it's a little above sea level. <laughs> okay, it's a lot above, like 1,300 feet above sea level. But, you know, we also know that um, the continent of Africa is a very active continent, that uh, the Aldivai Gorge and other, you know, these are big, the Rift Valley, 
uh, are all seismic, uh, you know, tectonic joints. So things move. We know that the that the the Atlantic has been spreading for a long time, and we know that the Rocky Mountains exist because of exactly that kind of tectonic pressure, you know, pushing up mountains, or the Himalayas with the South Asian, you know, the, the South Asian subcontinent slamming into and forcing them up. I mean, we know these things, um, or at least we uh, we have very strong conjecture, and and uh, it's a good educated guess that these yeah. are the things that actually. Yeah. Um, so all of that being said, there are interesting similarities between Egypt, Samaria via Babylon, right? Epic of Gilgamesh. Mm -hmm. um, the Rig Veda actually makes references to the building of, uh, well, okay, let's, let's back it up. Based on, let, let's start folklore. So folklore says what? It says that at some point in the past, and I'm not even going to get into why right now. I'm just going to say what happened. Mm -hmm. And that is that we know that there was a worldwide change that um, was cataclysmic in nature. Um, we know that water levels all over the world rose dramatically and rather suddenly. Um, and we're pretty sure we know why. And that is that basically the Ice Age ended. We had huge amounts of water all over the world that were tied up in gigantic continental ice sheets. Some, in some cases, they were um, two miles thick. I mean, think about that. Two miles thick of ice. <laughs> like, that's a lot. That's like 10,000 feet. That's almost as high as Everest, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's a lot of ice. And you can't have on a globe like this, or uh, sorry, I don't mean to offend anybody. Um, we'll say realm like this. Yeah, I, you know, don't want to put anybody out. Might not be a globe. Might be hollow. Might be flat. Might be a lozenge. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway. Um, but the point is that clearly something happened. Water levels came up. We, we used to think, I mean, if you think about it, they used to think that the stories of Pompeii and Herculaneum were sort of like popular legend. They didn't even, they thought that the Romans were writing about, you know, it, again, allegory, right? Ah, yes. And this is what happens. And, ah, bad planning. And not realizing until much later that no, they were actual cities that were buried by Vesuvius, you know, in seventy-nine mm -hmm. AD. So um we only recently have been discovering, and by we I mean people other than me, we've been discovering um off the coast of India in 125 feet of water, streets and walls. And that area has not been above uh you know above water in 12,000 years but we know that there are streets down there we know there are structured buildings and uh, even have found metal and pottery and other things now to be fair it's off the west coast of india and there's been a lot of traffic so material could have fallen off of ships and i mean there 
I, I'm always going to be pragmatic a little bit about about the information because it's really easy to go, oh, yes, and look, there's pottery, and look, oh, look, there's a nail. Yeah, that nail came out of a ship that sank and you know landed on the, mm-hmm. on the existing ruins, potentially. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? So um, I think it's always important in these conversations to temper our to not not to not have conjecture, but to temper our conjecture pragmatically, to be open to the possibility that we could be reading into things that aren't, you know, like the what's that that supposed megalithic structure that's off the coast of Japan, right? Yonaguni. That, uh, yeah, Yonaguni. Um, which is a very compelling argument for it being man-made. I mean, there are a lot of planes and structures and right angles and things, but a geologist looking at the kind of stone could also say, yes, and these are fractures that can occur in some kinds of stone as well. Like, it could be a natural phenomenon. To immediately go, oh, it's man-made, I think. I think it needs to be explored and investigated more. I think there's, there's, if it is man-made, there's information that will come up eventually that will determine that, right? They'll, they'll, there will be something, cut marks, whatever, you know, there'll be something. Um, but I know that, um, and don't get me wrong, I'm very fond of Graham Hancock. I, I, I really like how he thinks, and I like how he goes out and, and looks at the world and um, through a specific set of eyes, right? But I also have watched him make conjectural leaps that I kind of go, okay, I understand you're trying to prove a point, but, <laughs> right? It's when you start to, make the you bend the information to fit your your model mm-hmm. as compared to evaluating it objectively um but he's not i think he's not wrong about a lot of his a lot of his ideas because there are definitely things that he came across and he's you know illustrated that really raise a question raise some questions you know, about about the uh, antiquity, of course, Robert Schock and his um, evaluation of the Sphinx and the erosion patterns on the on the you know, enclosure around the Sphinx. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think are wrong. I, I think that he's I think that he's not off. Uh, the truth is that that requires a certain kind of consistent rainfall to get those kinds of uh, weather patterns you know, erosion patterns on, on that kind of structure. And that kind of rain has not been there since 10,500 BC. So how do you, how do you explain, you know, we also now realize based on the Egyptians depictions that the Giza plateau did not at the time that, that the pyramids, even if you go to the hypothetical time, I mean, not the hypothetical, the accepted a time that the pyramids were built, the Giza Plateau did not look like it looks now. It was actually more like the Serengeti. And we know that. Like, it was more like savanna. Mm-hmm. There are animals depicted in Egyptian reliefs that have not lived in the area of Egypt for thousands of years because they require that kind of savanna, um, sub-Saharan savanna um, ecosystem to exist and they're just not there certain kinds of gazelles and certain kinds of baboons and different things so it's clear that um while the nile has stayed relatively fertile and wet right 
the uh, the area around it has obviously dried out a great deal, like the, the, the weather. And of course, in part, it's because of the Atlas Mountains, which is very funny. The Atlas Mountains mm-hmm. create what's called a rain shadow. And they they have stopped. And I mean, the, the Sahara Desert really isn't that old. We kind of think of it that way, but it really isn't that old. Um, that there was a sh- major shift in the weather patterns on the planet, and all of a sudden there was a rain shadow across North Africa, and it created that that sand dune, rolling sand dune thing. What's interesting about the sand dunes is that they imply something very interesting about that area, which is that um, it may have been ocean. Yeah, because and that was ocean. Yeah. That was ocean floor. Which takes me back to the eye of the Sahara for a second, because that would also suggest, because the Sahara Desert goes right up to, you know, the dunes go fairly close to that, that would suggest that there may have been shallow sea or something very near to that, right? Near near Mm -hmm. to that that structure. So, anyway... um, one of the most interesting ones to me, and this is one that's captivated me since childhood, and that um, I don't know uh, if anybody remembers this. I, you know, I sometimes realize I'm the old man in the room, but uh, um, I remember uh, when National, Ge- National Geographic released this map, and it was a map of the sea floors of the ocean, right? The sea floors of the ocean floor of the world. And that was in the 70s sometime that I think is when that map came out. And I remember I remember being transfixed by it. Like I just thought it was a fascinating because if there was anything that was going to prove the existence of Atlantis in, in the Atlantic Ocean, you'd think it would be that. You'd see landforms and the, you know, the the not the subduction zone, the, you know, the the fissure that runs yeah, the, the plates through the Atlantic yeah. Ocean. Right. And so uh, I was very excited about that. But there was one thing that I saw and, and subsequently was picked up by satellite imagery, etc. that the more I learned as I got older, the more this has just been an absolute enigma. And that is that if you go over back over to uh, India and you go to what's now Pakistan, where the Indus River Valley where the Indus River ran, you know, from the Himalayas down through um, that area and into the Indian Ocean, you can literally see that there was a riverbed that runs off the coast. So it comes, it comes and it goes, it comes off of Pakistan and goes out into the ocean. Mm-hmm. And it's fairly, it's very evident. And it goes out for quite some ways, and it's very large. This is a a large, almost canyon. Now, if you know anything about rivers on the ocean, rivers that dump into the ocean create what's called an alluvial fan, which is all the sediment that's picked up by the river and carried out, and it dumps out into sort of this this fan, um, which changes over time how the river enters the ocean. Uh, We have an alluvial fan at the mouth of the uh, Mississippi River. Near, near New Orleans, there's this, there's this thing. Well, 
that's because the water is hitting a larger, the fresh water is hitting a larger body of water and it's slowing down, which means the sediments that are being carried by it are, are dropped out of the water. You don't get a trench, you know, that goes, goes out like that unless that was exposed land that had the river running through it that then was covered with water. Mm -hmm. Because it just got the, the you know, um, hydrodynamics just don't work like that. So, and what I thought find fascinating is there's that, but then the other in this river valley culture, you know, Mahenjadaru and, and, and Harappa and other uh, ancient cities that have been found along the banks of the uh, Indus River, above ground, now in Pakistan. And now they're finding the remnants of cities in 125 feet or more of water off the coast of India, Dvarka being a good example. Um, Dvarka was the ancient city of Krishna. And even according to the Bhagavad Gita, um, there was, you know, epic battles that went on and on and on between Ravenna and Krishna. And then uh, eventually Krishna's city was consumed by the waves. I mean, it's right there in the book. Mm -hmm. And and then, of course, there is a city of Devarka that is on a modern city, contemporary city that's on the coast. But they did notice that ruins seemed to go off under the water. And then they went out and started doing, you know, it's very, apparently that's very, um, and that's not the only city. They found other cities out there too. Um, but the water's very murky because of how the currents are right, right there off the coast. Yeah. Um, and what they were, the reason they found it is that they were doing a pollution survey. They were trying to determine how pollution from India was affecting, you know, how it was traveling and moving um off that off that area and they found these like literally grid system cities walls clearly built walls um at least to the depth of 125 feet so what that tells us is that uh and and you know these are these are the the, the most common these are the stories that everybody knows right everybody hears about this there was a very interesting um piece of Native American folklore, and I believe it might be Modoc tribe off the California coast, hmm. that uh, there was a popular story about this lake that was inland that had a whale in it. And everybody said, ah, yes, Native Americans and their quaint mythology. That's, that was really the kind of ethnologist approach, the archaeological approach to it, was that, ah, yes, uh, the whale of the lake. Well, something happened. Uh, they had to do something, construction or something, and they drained the river that connected the lake to the ocean and found a whale skeleton in the riverbed. Hmm. So the question is, a large seafaring mammal like that, how did it get into the lake? Because clearly it got up the river course and it got into the lake. Well. If you had a time when there was a tremendous amount of water that rose, that would open up the possibility of, a, uh, you know, a, a seafaring mammal mm -hmm. 
making its way into a lake. And one thing that's interesting about a lot of these stories is they talk about the waters rising, and then it talks about the waters receding. And, and that always has puzzled me, because if it is ice melt, right, why would it recede? Like, you know, but I think yeah. that the Black Sea is a good example of, of how you had places all over the world, possibly even the Caspian Sea and others that were depressions that once the water reached a certain level, anybody who's played with water runoff in the mud, which I know I did a lot when I was a child, water running off and make dams, you know, whatever. Um, you know how that works, that if there's a depression and water gets there and it spills over whatever the little wall you make is, it will fill that up and the water will, will level out. And the Black Sea is a good example. I mean, that's a large inland sea. That was, mm-hmm. a, that's a, that was a large area that uh, we know was a freshwater lake that was considerably lower in elevation, that when the water in the Mediterranean reached a certain level, it started to spill over the isthmus of the Dardanelles. And it carved a gap and it put this huge layer of salt water on top of a freshwater lake. Um, there are arguments that I've heard, some, some theories actually, that that may be where the famous, you know, um, Middle Eastern story of the flood came from, is that people lived along the banks of that freshwater lake and that uh, the, the compromising of the Dardanelles caused an entire civilization to get wiped out by sudden rising waters and people basically had to flee living next to that freshwater lake so uh which is interesting and they have the black sea is fascinating to me just as a side topic it's fascinating because it's a very unique place in the world where we have essentially an anaerobic environment where things don't rot. Things that go below that, that layer where the, where the fresh water met the salt water, the fresh water is not fresh. It's far from fresh. Um, but uh, things that go down there, there's nothing to eat them. There's no bacteria because it's all dead. So, we know that they've, you know, uh, what's his name? Bob Ballard, the same guy that found, found the Titanic, um, dropped a submersible and found a Roman, a ro- wooden Roman ship that was 1600 years old with its mast still standing on it, mm-hmm. right? And there have been over 50,000 recorded shipwrecks on the Black Sea. 50,000. You realize what that means is down there? I mean, there could be Viking ships down there with the Vikings still in them, you know? Um, So it's, it's, that's, that's a whole other topic that's just absolutely fascinating to me. But getting into, so we know that these things happen. We know that there's evidence all over the world that suggests that, that water levels rose. You know, I've just given some ideas of of why the water might've receded. Right. Mm -hmm. But what does it actually say about what existed before? What's interesting about these stories, whether you're talking about the Bhagavad Gita or you're talking about the Big 
Veda, whether you're talking about the Epic of Gilgamesh, it doesn't matter what one you're talking about. There is this strange commonality about descriptions of social, you know, civilization, social order, languages, architecture, um, even uh, technology that are all alluded to. And I think in these in these ancient texts, and I'm sure you've talked about it before, the Vimana and, and other other elements from the mm-hmm. Bhagavad Gita and the Mahabharata, Mahabharata, um, where I mean, let's let's just ask the question instead of making making any conjecture. What are they? What were they talking about? How, how did these ideas? Where did these ideas in these ancient texts come from? And it is interesting to note that the flood or the this cataclysm. There's always a history before it happened. That should be one of our biggest biggest clues. You know, whether when you're talking about the the flood story from the Sumerians, which then became you know transliterated transliterated through the Epic of Gilgamesh, etc. They're always talking about uh, yes, and it was Sodom and Sodom and Gomorrah is before the Tower of Babel is before the mm-hmm. flood in these texts. So the question you have to ask is. Even if we're even if we like I said don't make the conjecture, conjectural leaps about it, what were they referring to? What are they? Obviously, there's some model that's pretty consistent. Whether you're talking about Atlantis or whether you're talking about the Sumerians or whether you're talking about the Indians, there is some. And now the possibility that there's a Mayan still a city off the coast of Cuba. Like uh, there's there's a I know that there's a, an argument there. Pyramid, um, yeah. I think they I think they I think they need to go and do more. Before I'm sold on that one, I need to see uh, more more data <laughs> I, I, and and more up close data because the problem with using sonar to map the ocean bottom is. There are a lot, especially at the depths they're talking about, there are a lot of anomalies that can create false information. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, you can get bounced back off of things that can tell a story that's different than what's actually there. So, um, and I'm not discounting it. I'm just saying I think that it would be advisable to go and do more research before, you know, come on, they've got LIDAR now, right? The lidar, the, the the that they were using in the Yucatan to actually, they've now realized that the Mayan civilization was far larger and far more complex than anybody realized before, because they can literally strip the canopy off and see, oh, there was a road there, right? There were you know, structures and cities, um, but uh, let's see what was my point. Okay, so one of my big arguments also is that almost every civilization, whether you're talking about the 
megalithic Celts in Ireland, whether you're talking about Wales, whether you're talking about uh, Samaria, whether you're talking about Egypt, there is this one interesting commonality between them, which is uh, people showing up with advanced technology, information, knowledge in boats. That is a very common theme, whether it's the seven stages up the Nile, whether it's the boats mm -hmm. coming up the Persian Gulf and landing at the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates. And all of these things, all of these accounts do suggest, well, and I mean, come on, let's just go right into it. Even if you don't count those things, um, again, the, the story of one big boat being built, right? Mm -hmm. Beforehand. Again, beforehand. And they had the technology to build a boat. Boat building is not some kind of, oh, you know, hey, I'm building a campfire, let's build a boat. You know, there's a, there's a lot of technology involved, a lot of understanding and um, skill required to build any sort of navigable boat. Yes. Whether you're building it out of uh, bamboo or whether you're building it out of uh, oak, it doesn't, doesn't matter. There's a lot there. So, um, but there is this commonality. And it would be interesting. Well, okay. So there's another part to it too. And that is that all over the world, well, all over the world, there are also, there's, there, are, there are examples of architecture that suggest a very high knowledge of stoneworking, as we know, whether it's the big stone at Ball. That one stone in the wall at, uh, you know, in Ball, in, uh, what's that? Um... Baalbek? Did someone just walk behind you? Yeah, my, yeah, son, Baalbek, my son's here. Okay. Hi, son. <laughs> um, the, uh, but, but Baalbek, right? That stone is mind-boggling in its size and weight, and we would struggle to move it now. Mm -hmm. It's huge. You think of uh, the the stones um, in Peru that the you know the, that are cut to fit together that are gigantic. I mean, those are huge stones, and it's funny. People go, "Ah, oh, yes, the Inca ruins." The Incas denied that they made them. The Incas have denied repeatedly that they made them. They even told Pizarro they didn't make them. They built on top of stones that were already there. Mm -hmm. So clearly, something was going on all over the world with a megalithic technology that does suggest a high level of civilization. Um, what is also interesting to note, and people, I don't really hear people talk about this very much, but the, the Andes Mountains are the result of the same kind of pressure that produced the Himalaya Mountains. The Himalaya Mountains. Mm -hmm. And it's that, it's that tectonic force. I heard that I saw this the other day, and it just, I don't know. I don't know why this bugs me so much. It shouldn't bug me, but it does. Someone said, they were like, and when they climbed Everest, they found fossils on the top of Mount Everest, which means it was underwater at some point. I go, well, yes, but not because water was over the Himalayas. It's because they used to be seafloor and were pushed up. It's, it's like there's mm. this... 
this thing where people go, I guess the world has been exactly the way it is forever and ever. And then there was water and then there wasn't. It's like, <laughs> come on, you know, some, some logic here. You're right. Recognize that, that, that the world is far more complicated and older than you even want to deal with. Right. And a lot of things have happened in the course of this little planet that we're on <laughs> or, or, or lozenge or disc or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. One of the things I, I always say, like to throw that in there as a pose. <laughs> one of the things <laughs> I like to say with the mountain things is are are they hollow or solid? I guess depending upon how they were formed could uh could determine that. If it's plates that push up against each other to create the mountain, they could definitely be hollow inside, right? But if it's just uh a different type of formation of a mountain like rolling from from earthquakes or whatnot, then I guess that could be a little bit different and solid underneath. So that's always kind of been a weird one to me. I'm not sure if there's a, I'm not sure if there's a single answer to that. I think that there are definitely, if you, if you, if you simply like what's interesting living where I live is I've got the Wasatch mountains literally right here. I mean, Mm -hmm. I can look at them. I could open my curtains right now and look at and they are very much the, they're part of the Rocky Mountain chain. And they are very obviously, you can see it all over the place, the result of tecton, you know, tectonic pressure pushing mm-hmm. rock up. Because you can see the folds. You can literally see, you can go into the canyons and you can literally see how the rock used to be like this. And now it's like that, <laughs> right? And there are sedimentary layers that under incredible pressure have been I mean, it's it's pretty evident. It's really interesting to live in a place where the geology is so obvious. Like it's, yeah. it's you can literally yeah. see that the the rock goes like this. It's literally folded up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and when you go up there, there's agate, and there are all kinds of rocks that are related to metamorphic pressure, where the pressures have become, become so extreme that he basically remelted, right? But it is interesting to note that we also have several stories uh, in the world, whether it's the ant people uh, in the Southwest, the Anunnaki, which I found very, very interesting. (laughs) That's the name of the ant people is the Anunnaki. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I find funny. but a lot of conversations about about people going underground to protect themselves from a cataclysm. That that structures were built underground. Uh, there's that big city in um, it's in Turkey, and it's multiple layers deep, and yes. it's very very old, and nobody even nobody even knew it was there mm. for a long time. Uh, and it is interesting. What's that one called? What's that called? Uh, I don't remember. <laughs> I can see it in my mind, but I, know, I can't remember too. the name. Anyway, but it's interesting that that in that area of the world, we also have Gebekli Tepe, mm-hmm. which uh, which has I just I I love it when they find things like Gebekli Tepe. Because, and then they date them, and it completely screws up their preconceived notions about time. Because 
you know, Gebekli Tepe, everything says it's like 11,000 years old. That puts it right at the end of the Ice Age. And it has, it exhibits technology, understanding of, of, of stone carving, stone working, alignments, et cetera. And the weirdest thing about that site, the weirdest part about it, is that it appears to have been deliberately buried. Yeah. That amount of work to deliberately bury it, and not like make it into tombs or anything, like literally just fill it up. It was filled up with backfill, right, of sand and, and gravel. And what do they estimate? There's something like 52 or 53 circles there. They've only excavated like a small portion of the whole site. It's a huge site. Yeah. Right? And you look at that and you go, okay. That level of technology, when supposedly we were barely farmers, makes yep. no sense. And that's one of those arguments, I think, for there being something going on prior to the end of the Ice Age. So that, and I, I guess that's where, where my whole sort of perspective on it has come from, has come down to, I mean, is, okay. That city in it Turkey, by Evan. the way, is called Darren Kuyu. Darren Kuyu, yes, thank you. <laughs> Darren Kuyu. Um, there clearly are signs all over the world that there was there are stories that there was a civilization before. There are a lot of evidence to suggest that before the waters rose, there was civilization of some kind. That means that there was Ice Age civilization. That's the only thing that, I mean, it's not even a conjectural leap. It's the only thing that's possible. Mm -hmm. You have areas of the world where, where they have not been above water since the end of the Ice Age, and there are clearly, there's human remains, elements, architecture structure under that water there's like literally people can stand in a room and say i, I don't know okay but underwater ha hasn't been above water for a long time clearly man-made that kind of ends the discussion about whether there was civilization before there was water there right mm -hmm. like you can't really argue with it um i do have uh some a thought about why it wasn't more gradual and why most of these stories are cataclysmic in nature. And I think I, I, I'm sure this happened other places in the world, but one of our best documented examples of it is something called Great Lake Missoula. Have you ever heard of that? Um, no, I don't think so. Okay. So there was a time, obviously the ice was melting. Uh, there were huge ice sheets that covered Canada, most of Canada, yeah. covered under these very big ice sheets. And in the, I want to say it was in the 50s, it might have been earlier than that, um, geologists started making observations all over central Washington state, uh, northern, northern Montana, into Wyoming, these, these, these areas, that there was evidence of a huge amount of water had carved the ground and created land ripples and all sorts of other things. And 
through charting and, and obviously conjecture and geology and, and, and other things, they came to the conclusion that as the ice was melting, um, depressions formed in the ice sheets and they filled up with water. And they filled up with some cases, uh, in fact, they're, one of them is Great Lake Missoula, which they estimate was about 10,000 miles long. It was about um, mm. 200 miles across and was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about a mile deep wow. of water. And what they think happened is that there came a point in the melting process where the ice barrier wall that held up the southern end of it, the water started to spill over. And of course, if you spill water over ice, it melts it fairly quickly and it broke. The wall, the ice dam that was there broke and that water, all that water emptied out in about three days. Mm -hmm. Now, it's entirely possible that humans witnessed <laughs> that there were humans that were present in North America that act. I mean, they probably didn't witness it for very long, but they, they probably did witness the breaking of the ice wall because it would have happened about 12, 12,000 years ago. It would have happened about that end of the ice age time. And we know that before the ice age ended, there were already at least some people in, in North America. We, we found evidence of that. So, um, just ice giants. Exactly. Well, the, the Giants of Reno. I mean, you've heard of the, or the Giants of Nevada. You've heard of them, right? Yeah, Lovelock. Yeah. Well, so North America is such a weird enigma when they start digging around and they find the weirdest stuff. And they, it's so much, it's interesting how much has been absolutely dismissed because it doesn't fit the ideological, political, or accepted narrative of of uh north america but there are a lot of there are some very strange anomalies here mm -hmm, mm -hmm. structures that they cannot figure out who built them that seem to predate other things um evidence of of human uh habitation they've they've found things that don't fit the native american um physiology like we it's hard to know what was going on on this continent and you know who was here and how they got here and how long they were here. Um, but there is something that happened. Have you heard of the? Uh, well, you know the Laurentide, the I think it's called the Laurentide, Laurentide, Laurentide ice sheet. It was the main ice sheet over Canada. Mm -hmm. um, and there was an event that they're pretty sure, based on uh, different things that occurred, where something came to the atmosphere and exploded, and actually didn't actually hit the ground, but it, it probably airburst like a comet or something um, over North America that actually reversed the end of the ice age for about a thousand years. It actually plunged us into a mini ice age. And um, anyway, going back to the Lake, Great Lake Missoula, is I'm guessing since there were also ice sheets like that in uh, um, North Central Asia, over over parts of Europe, over you know north of China, that Great Lake phenomenon was probably happening in other places too as the ice melted, which would explain sudden rise. If you had these ice dams breaking and suddenly pouring water, 
into the ocean directly or indirectly, that would cause not a gradual rise, but a sudden rise, right? Mm -hmm. And then as that was, you know, that water is, is washing down over things, it's soaking into the ground, it's filling depressions, the water is going to come up and then it's going to go back. Black Sea, Caspian Sea, et cetera, et cetera. The Great Salt Lake, good example, which is almost dry now. It's the Great Salt Puddle at the moment. Um, there's a place here called Antelope Island, which in the last like two years has become Antelope Peninsula. Because um, the water's, you know, the water has, has dried up a lot. But the, the point is that it would have filled up basins like the Great Salt Lake. Um, that, that outwash from, from that area, mm -hmm. uh, which means that you could see how you could have cataclysmic rise and fall of water. Okay. Right. Um, and it is interesting to note, going back to the eye of the Sahara, that if you look, if you look at that from space, there is a definite indication that water has washed out of it toward the ocean for a long period of time. There's definitely erosion marks out of it, right? Mm -hmm. Now, imagine if for whatever reason it filled up with water and then that water drained out. It could have a similar eroding effect, the same that you see in central Washington. If you ever fly in an airplane over central Washington, you can see it as clear as day. You can see these huge erosion patterns. Right. Mm -hmm. That that uh, that have scoured the land. There's even a place called Dry Falls um, that they they say was created by that water washing over. And it was created in a short period of time. It was the size of Niagara Falls. And it dug a hole and now there's no water <laughs> because it washed out. Um, but. Um, anyway. So as far as antediluvian civilization, that's unfortunately where we go really into the realms of conjecture, because we have folklore accounts, whether it's the Indian or whatever, but um, the hard proof is difficult because really, where's our evidence? It's inaccessible because it's on the bottom of the ocean. And the bottom of the ocean, we like to think of it as something we can get to, but it really is it really isn't that. Can you still hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, it, it really is it's really uh, quite complex, especially the deeper it gets. You know, anything under 140 feet is very hard for humans to get to. Uh, you know, humans independently, just mm -hmm. because of the pressure. Um, you can take submersible down submersibles down to a certain point, but we forget that. The oceans are vast. I mean, they, they cover huge areas. You'd have to somehow find a, a, a signal, a, you know, a, a point, um, and then go and explore that area around that point. And even that's hard to do. Um, you know, who knows? The technology might exist eventually where we can, where we can do that. Possibly the, the LIDAR, the, you know, the dropping the sonar down. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the area off the coast of India is very interesting, and I, I feel like it's worthy of a lot more exploration. I mean, that, that whole the Indian Ocean, that whole area between there's Madagascar a, and India. 
there's an idea of Kumari Kandam, which was like a continent that touched India, Australia, and Africa in that area um, that some people believe might have been an Atlantis-type place. Um, so there is that. Uh, there's talks about Mu being in the Pacific. Uh, there's talks of Atlantis being all over the place. I can't figure it out. The Rechat, uh, Bimini Road, the Yucatan, all of these different places. There's all kinds of stuff going on with the Amazon and the Terra Preta. They know it's man-made soil, but they don't know how it got there. Well, obviously it got there from man at some point. Uh, there's all kinds of different things going on. Um, you know, with the saga, the box saga it talks about Atlantis being in the north in uh, Helsinki in Finland. And uh, it talks about everything else being like a ringland or a copycat of this prototype of Atlantis. And I think that is kind of like a, a fulfilling explanation because it shows you why there's so many different places that they think could have been Atlantis uh, because they were all emulating a place that was known as Atlantis. Um, even like uh, when you get into America, there's a lot of like Atoll type references. Um, I think even uh, there was a part of America called Atslan, and it meant uh, the land of whiteness, which could have meant either place of ice or a uh, place of uh, white people. But regardless, it they said that it came from their homeland. So they brought that name with them from there. So then you have, okay, so land of whiteness. So that could be Atlantis too. Atlan sounds pretty close to Atlan or Atlantis. Um, and right. then even Ots, uh, there's like, uh, it means uh, surrounded by water, I think it is what it means, kind of like an island term, because uh, there's Mazatlan Ma uh, and different other places like that in, in Mexico, South America area. So there's all kinds of possibilities of where Atlantis can be. To me, the obvious evidence is the fact, kind of what you were alluding to earlier, is all of these other stories start with big ships like obviously they had to have known and even in biblical one if you want to use that one noah was like 400 and something or 500 years old when he built the boat to save everybody so obviously he had lived 400 or to 500 years somewhere else before that so where, where did he live right. and how did he have family before that if if not because there was another civilization that existed before this flood? Um, and then we talked to somebody earlier today who talked about uh, some stories in um, Egypt where the Coptic Egyptians talked about uh, them building the pyramids as almost like arcs. Uh, so that they could fill it with everything from that civilization so that when the flood happened, they they had protection from it. And it talked about the waters receding uh, and then the mountains appearing, which were the pyramids, appearing 
from the water as if the water receded and then there's the mountains uh the pyramids there Interesting. uh so we have a lot of these ideas and obviously they and even in the coptic uh egyptian text they um that scott Crichton was talking to us about he said that there was uh some star watchers or whatnot that said that they saw the stars move over the heavens uh from their original place and they knew that this was going to cause an ice age or uh, a flood to happen because they knew that the uh terrain the sun was going to be in a different spot and stuff was going to melt so they started building these pyramid structures as arcs to save humanity and um so that way they would have seeds and knowledge and all these different things after the floodwaters eventually receded uh so obviously there's people watching stars back then too and and knowing of on ongoings and celestial knowledge of what was going to happen and how how is it that all these ancient ancient texts we still go by today like we still seek the ancient texts for knowledge on how to do things now like obviously they had some type of knowledge that supersedes us so where did that come from if not from an ancient civilization that existed before uh, we always try to think that people were not as intelligent or whatever back then because they didn't have certain things like we have now because they didn't have palm pilots and cell phones and bluetooth but maybe they had saber tooth and <laughs> uh <laughs> well they had different yeah, kind of tablets that's, that's a, there's a, there's a whole parody uh <laughs> i think a, 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 a south park episode i think should be about that um no, you know uh, what's what's interesting too. Um, there was a series that 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 someone did called After Man. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah. Where like uh, nature just Where swallows it, up mankind, basically. But it showed based on decay rates of our building materials how quickly our edifices would go away. Right, three to four hundred years, I think. Well. 12,000 years is long enough for any number of things to simply go away, yeah. right? Like, I mean, there could have been all manner of, um, you know, of material uh, and, and structures. You know, it's funny, just this has made me think about kind of my theory about runes a little bit, that what the runes, what I starting to, what I actually think the runes are is that they were a system that, that was designed to help retain a body of knowledge that mm -hmm. could be easily carried via memory because carrying physical tablets, artifacts, whatever was not practical. Mm -hmm. So they came up with a system that would use um, um, ideographic symbols to spur bodies of knowledge in people that had the right teaching. They had the right training to do it. Um, like I said the, uh, before, you know, the Iliad is a long poem. It's like 10,000 stanzas long. 
And that was part of oral tradition. That story would have been memorized and told as you know, part of public performance before it was ever written down. Mm-hmm. Homer's the one who wrote it down. That's all we know. It's attributable to Homer writing it down. But everything suggests that it is the story had been around for some time before it ever got written down or turned into, you know, what it was. So um, if Homer's doing that and recounting the Trojan War, then which we're now pretty sure happened and we are pretty sure we know where it happened and who was actually involved and that they were real, real people. That's Black Sea uh, stuff right war. there again too, right? But, that's yep, Black Sea too. Black Sea stuff for sure. Yeah. Exactly. So we know that that, and it's certainly that area, Anatolia, you know, it's certainly that, that, uh, in the Dardanelles, across the Dardanelles from from Sparta, uh, which of course is where Menelaus, Agamemnon joins Menelaus and they they attack uh, Troy. But the the point is that that methodology of story retention and telling has was part of the traditions of that part of the world for a long time. I mean, we know that the stories of Alexander. Their, their experiences of being invaded by Alexander are recorded in a very similar way. They have these whole long epic songs that are that talk about that experience of Alexander, of Alexander coming and and doing hideous things to Darius and you know and burning the palace to, and all that. So, um, and then we have the Bardic tradition in in Celtic. You know the Celtic uh, in Ireland and Wales that kind of that long memory of, of very complicated stories that are are memorized based on the structure of memorization, right? So, and that works with stories and parable, parable and all that. But how do you record medical information? How do you record and save scientific information or mathematical information? Well, I'm suggesting that's what the runes are. They're a system of recording the less romantic elements, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? And then you tie them into these stories. And it's funny because I just, uh, for the first time, I've actually watched the entire Viking series because I was kind of curious <laughs> about it. So I watched the whole thing yeah. to the end. And what... There are a lot of things that I question highly about that series, but there are also some interesting points, which is the telling, how they told stories of the gods, and the way that they portray that, like that. one of my favorites is how they tell the story of Ragnarok, because, you know, the uh, Athelstan keeps asking, I keep hearing Ragnarok, what's Ragnarok? And so then the seer, they, they burn the leaves, and, the, and everybody gets a little high, and then they, they tell the story of, of Ragnarok. And the thing is that it's very uh, poetic, but if you listen to the material, what they're talking about, they're describing earth phenomenon. In fact, they're describing earth phenomenon that very likely could have happened at the end of the Ice Age. Mm-hmm. They're talking about eclipses and and the mini Ice Age and uh, and the... And see, and I, I've argued for a long time that Ragnarok is not something that was going to happen. Ragnarok was something that already happened. 
I think that Ragnarok was in the past. I don't think it was a, I don't think it was a, a future event. I think it was a past event that they were remembering. And it's interesting because the gods die during Ragnarok. Now think about that. Okay, so let's just hypothetically say that Ragnarok is actually an antediluvian story. I mean, it's yeah. not, it's not, it's, it's right, flood era story. Mm-hmm. And that what we're talking about is maybe it's the little ice age where things were going along, but then all of a sudden there was an explosion in the sky and the wolf swallowed the sun and there was war and there was famine and there was all these things because that's what a little ice age would do. But there was clearly a golden age before Ragnarok. Right. That's recorded in the Eddas. And so, um, but it is it is interesting that we we do, and I think the reason, and, and this goes right to Atlantis too. What was going on in the world that so many cultures not only experienced something, but had this incredible need to project the knowledge of that experience forward? They said, This is something that can happen. No matter how strong your kings are, no matter how stable you are, no matter how entrenched in tradition you think you are, things can happen here that will fuck all of that up totally, completely, and you will have to rebuild. My argument is that our entire civilization is a refugee civilization. We are the survivors of a cataclysm of a high civilization that existed before. And that right. we've, we've taken it maybe to, to new levels, different levels. But, um, you know, human ingenuity is a pretty bizarre thing. We'll, we'll, we'll come up with, I mean, come on, what are we doing right now? You've got headphones on your head. You're talking into a microphone <laughs> that I can see. We're talking over a, a device that has more computing power than, in fact, what did they say? A thousand times more computing power than the computers they use to figure out, if you believe in this sort of thing. The, the moon land. Yeah. Right. And we're walking around with that in our hand. Right. And there are, and there are, there are now computers that are, are using atoms in solid state chunks to move data. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what, what even what, right. And they've teleported, but, they've teleported an atom. So that means they could teleport knowledge to somewhere else then too, because they could put knowledge onto that atom and teleport it wherever they wanted. Did did I tell you guys my what if? (laughs) What if what? Did I tell you the what if? Hit me with it. I I love what what ifs. I I had a what if story. I said, okay, so let's, let's just look for a second at the Bhagavad Gita where we see these big, big, huge, colossal battles being fought out between gods, right? This is a, something mm-hmm. that's portrayed in the Indian epics um, and others. Um, in fact, you even see it in the Sumerian stories, whatever, gods fighting with each other, right? Yeah. Um, and using what are described, the kind of weapons that are described sound, seem like plasma weapons. Sometimes they sound like nuclear weapons. I mean, they, they're very high-tech weapons. And all of this is before the water rose. (laughs) So that's an interesting point. But, okay, so I said just once, I said, okay, let's just do a what if. What if 
we kind of follow the Zachariah Sitchin model of things, that there are spacefaring beings that they that's what they do. They travel around looking for resources, right? Like every living thing tends to do. And they come to Earth and they find this this planet and they find life on it and they find proto, you know, hominids on it. And that there's a, you know, to follow the Sitchin model, there are the EG who are sent down to extract the minerals and they're saying, well, screw you guys, you pretentious Anunnaki. We're going to, we don't want to do all the work. So can you take these monkeys here and turn them into something that can do work for us so we don't have to do it? And they go, oh, fine. Well, lazy bastards. Okay. So they they create humans. They create us to do work, basically as a slave race. This mm-hmm. is <clears throat> well. So there are Homo sapiens on this planet that are biological constructs. Uh, they are created. They are um, engineered, if you will, to do different tasks. Too different groups are engineered to do different tasks. Right? You have people that got to run things. You got people that they just need their labor. They you know different <clears throat> you know monitor systems, bureaucracy, whatever. Okay. But they have to be smart enough to run their technology, whoever they are, right? Mm-hmm. Well, let's just say hypothetically that they that two of them show up and they're their adversaries and they get into a big ass fight. And in the middle of this big ass fight, the earth actually gets blown up. Not in that Lucas-like Alderon vaporizing sort of way. I mean, it gets blown up the way probably a planet would blow, you know, fracture and break up. There'd be big chunks, right? It's not, it's, it's not paper. It's, it's blown into larger pieces. Well, now what if that actually happened? And what if another group who, this other group, did, you know, the other adversaries, they could care less. But another group said, well, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. We created these sentient beings on here. We just blew up the planet that they're on. We should try to save them, right? Because it's not like they're ants. They're, they're, they're relatively intelligent and they're conscious. And we did spawn them. So we probably should take some responsibility. Mm-hmm. So what do they do? They create some kind of a sphere to go around the earth. And they create some sort of a force field technology that pulls those chunks that are left back together. Now, you realize most humans on the planet have been wiped out because that's what happens when you blow up the planet. And a lot of animals got got wiped out, too. A lot of life, you know, who knows? Dinosaurs, who knows? Um, Or the last of the dinosaurs. So they use this force field to, to pull these chunks together. And then to hide the force field, they cover it with water because the chunks that are left fit together, but they don't entirely fit together, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this, we'll call it a faux earth that would be hollow in the center that is floating inside of a sphere that has projected on it what we think our sky is. And it has other technologies. And then we have the moon and the moon is here and it's a physical thing. But basically, it's the operational station that's watching overall. And then they say, well, clearly we can't. This solar system is screwed up or, you know, this situation is untenable. So we're just going to take this and we're going to go find a planet that's enough like it that we can just move these critters on here. Because what's the whole post-flood story? 
be fruitful and multiply. Why? Because almost all the people got wiped out, right? Mm-hmm. So now my what if is, what if we are on a remnant planet that's floating inside of a sphere that thinks that we're in a relatively fixed position in space, when in fact we're not. We haven't been in our solar system for some time. We're inside of a giant Death Star type, type sphere that's moving through space. And that uh, notice that all of a sudden in the last few years, what's been going on? Oh, we've got Hubble looking out and we're finding exoplanets and we're finding all these planets around other stars of other kinds. And we're looking for the one in the Goldilocks zone, Earth-like planets, right? Well, what if the reason that's happening is not because those are 12,000 light years away, but because they're nearby. We're actually close to them, and the cataclysm happened 12,000 years ago. So the truth is we've been traveling through space, and we're just getting close to a possible home, you know, some, some options. And so the, uh, our, our benevolent overlords that are in the moon, <laughs> just to run with it, right? Our benevolent overlords that are in the, ro- are in the moon are going, okay, well, the population of the Earth has gotten their civilization is back up. We've got a good population. Now, all we have to do is create enough of a cataclysm, not to destroy them, but to mask the fact that we are secretly moving them from the remnants of the old Earth onto a new Earth. And there has to be enough of an upheaval to rationalize why suddenly landforms are different than they were on planets, right? So, it, and it made me think of this one episode of Star Trek Next Gen, where Worf's brother has, has been living amongst these people whose planet is, is falling apart. And so what he does is he beams them onto the holodeck into a holographic cave system and is leading them from the land where everything is bad to a new land where everything mm. will be good. Yeah. Right. And I went and see, the thing is I, I, I have a great mistrust of media. I think that they are constantly doing things to prepare us for things, program us for things, um, create uh, ideologies or ideas they want us to embrace because it's all part of someone else's plan uh, to get us, you know, to do what we wanted, what they want us to do. I said, well, if you take the whole exoplanet idea, shows like Next Generation that talk about going to a new planet, passengers, movies about colonizing new planets, this is an ongoing thing, going to Mars. What if going to Mars is not going to Mars? What if not? What if going to Mars is not going to Mars at all? What if Mars, we haven't been anywhere near Mars for a long, 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 long time. What if the, the going to Mars is really about us going to the new exoplanet and that they're just preparing us and that Elon Musk is probably not even a human. <laughs> he's, he's probably something else entirely. Um, but uh, you notice these, well, these, but you know, even, even Werner von Braun, what was his, what was his obsession? Mars, going to Mars, Elon Musk, Mars. They're all obsessed with going to Mars. Why? No, maybe because Mars is the proto planet that we are with, with that will show up on that when we arrive it will not be what we think it is maybe we still got some time you know 100 years or more so they're hoping well we're going to 
terraform Mars. We're not really terraforming Mars. We're just getting ready for the new planet. Hmm. Anyway, I mean, that's my that's my what if. Oh, and that we never got off the ark. That the Earth is the ark, and we never got off the ark. Ah, interesting. Yeah, that's my what if. How, how much of that is what if, and how much of that is uh, knowledge that you've attained from your blue friends? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the the weird part. So this is a weird thing that I've learned about all that is that um oh yeah if i my audio goes dead for a second it's because there it's about to go okay um it keeps telling me it keeps yelling at me in my ear um <laughs> you know there are things that have come up in my process of kind of trying to understand them and their whole part in my life i wrote a fictional story in 1997 inspired by them that was it was told fiction um and it was going to be a script that was the whole idea to be a film script um, which we did write a script eventually but it, it, the script has problems but anyway um the point is that my suggestion in this my story was that they are they were travelers this is fiction now they were travelers that the way they explore planets is that they are born as the most mobile and intelligent being on the planet to explore the planet. They don't come in a physical form themselves. They are born through some, you know, born as that, which is why we have avatars of Vishnu and we have, you know, the Jaguar child that spawned the Olmec civilization, which led to the Mayan civilization, on and on and on. We have these proto people that are unlike other people that seem to have incredible influence on changes in civilization. So um, my supposition in my, my fictitious story was that there are people who are descended biologically from the people that were physically changed, because that's the thing, you can't accommodate their consciousness without evolving the vessel. And the ev evolved vessel then reproduces, and hence the reason we suddenly have all kinds of uh, homo sapiens, you know, homo sapien activities all over the world. Well, in my story, what I was suggesting was that um, every time they person, oh, hang on. Hello. You're good. Just continue like that. That's fine. Second, I, I just lost everything. Aha. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. No worries. I'll be as close to the microphone as I can. Is that, can you still hear me? Yeah, I can hear you good. Huh? Weird. Okay. Um, well, and the, basically what happened is they didn't realize when they came to this planet that their presence was going to have such a profound change to the vessels they inhabited. And so basically our entire civilization was the byproduct of them just exploring kind of accidentally. And so they've been using the genetic descendants who have some consciousness connection to them, using them to clean up the evidence of their arrival in the archaeological archaeological record. So they'll find them because there'll be artifacts that that have aliens depicted on them. 
And so they go, uh, yeah, we need to uh, remove that because we need the, we need to try to un- uninterfere with. Um, we need to uninterfere with this species as much as we possibly can because we basically made a mistake. So the, my supposition, my story is that we were fundamentally an accident that they're trying to correct <laughs> their involvement. <laughs> kind of like um you still there yeah kind of like uh when you go through time can you hear me no yes i can you can there are weird things in my house sorry <laughs> that does seem to happen <laughs> kind of like uh the idea of time travel yeah say that one more time Kind of like the idea of time travel, how when you travel right. through time and you mess with history, it changes outcomes. So because they were here and left a footprint, they're trying to cover up their footprints or their tracks that they left. So that way we can get over it and go on our own path. Exactly. Um you know what's interesting? There's a you know there are a few people. I don't I don't consider very many, many modern people to be prophets, mm-hmm. but there are two people that I sort of consider to be prophetic in their own way. George Carlin is one of them. He seemed to be a sort of a modern philosopher prophet. Yeah. But um, actually, Douglas Adams, um, because even though he was writing satire and humor. If you spend as much time with The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and with Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency as I have, which is I I actually have both of those series on my phone and I listen to them often. <laughs> I've listened to all of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy many, many times. Yeah. Um, I, have the, I have the whole radio series and then I have um, the whole book read by Douglas Adams of Dirk, De- Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. And the thing that's interesting is he clear? Yeah, I know. Hang on one second. There are there are ideas. What what you realize listening to the humor of Douglas Adams is that he was an incredibly intelligent man. Like his understanding of everything from physics to space travel to evolution to you name it was bizarrely advanced if you actually like look into it. So um, uh, what was my point? Oh, my point was that like he makes statements in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He goes, um, what is it? It said, it uh, goes, if, if anybody ever really figured out what was really going on, it would collapse and be replaced by something completely new. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that many people suggest that this has already happened, that the universe we're in is not the universe we think we're in, that it's a that this is a new universe that has emerged because they're they're mutually exclusive. They both don't they can't both exist at the same time, like really, really intense, broad ideas that are wrapped up in humor, which is one of the best ways to do it. <laughs> right well i mean you, you want to say, expose people 
He did say the answer to everything is 42. Which is interesting because uh, apparently he was also into, he was very into computers. He was a very, he was like a coder as well, like, like mm -hmm. a pro programmer. And 42 is some coding number that has to do with, uh, I, I don't know, I, I don't know the, the computer science behind it, but there's some significance to the number 42 as far as systems. If you, Go take, ahead. If you take the word math, and you uh, do gematria with math, uh, M is 13, A is 1, T is 20, H is 8. And if you add it all up, it's 42. So Interesting. The, an the answer to everything is math, which is very, very true, right? There, there's a compelling <laughs> argument there. I, I can't deny. Um yeah, no, it's uh, you know it's um, uh, a weird thing. Uh, I don't know why this made me think of it. Well, it's because I have an obsession, as you know, with the the number eight and the number nine are both yeah. incredibly significant numbers for me. So the thing is, these things play out in weird ways. So, and this is going to sound trivial, but it struck me because it wasn't. I went to the farmers market yesterday, and this yeah. woman who sells really good really good peaches there. And I had $17 with me. And mm -hmm. I, I walked up to her and I said, I said, how many peaches can I get for $17? And she said, well, here, and she was doing it by weight, right? So she puts it on the scale and she weighs it. She goes, oh, well, this one's a little underweight here. I'll throw another peach in there. She did. I didn't see the peaches until I got home because they were already mostly bagged, except for the one she added. And I got home and I took the peaches out of the bag and I was thinking about other things and I put them in a bowl and uh, I said, mm, I'm going to try one of those peaches. So I ate a peach. And as I ate the peach, I looked in the bowls and realized there were seven peaches in the bowl. Mm. She'd given me eight peaches for $17. One plus seven. And I didn't mm. see the eight until I picked up the one and was eating it and realized there were seven left. <laughs> and I went, okay, weird rhythms. Weird with, I mean, that come on, it's a little thing, but I think that's how things work. I think that there are these Adams. harmonics that are running through things all the time, mm -hmm. and that we will, um, and that, and it's not just a matter of oh, we see them, it's that they'll manifest for us. I mean, that was a direct manifestation 17, one, seven. I eat one, seven and one is eight. There are eight, I eat one, it's seven and one. I mean, it's like Come on. <laughs> right. Um, so when we were um, talking uh, to Scott earlier about the pyramid, he had mentioned that there's eight sides on the pyramid, on the Great Pyramid. Uh, and then there's a capstone, right? So you have your eight sides on yep. the pyramid and you have your capstone, which is your seat, which is what you were talking about before. Yeah. And the sides of the pyramids are equilateral triangles. Yep. There are four equilateral triangles laid like this. Now, granted, there are four equilateral triangles around a square. I think they're sandstone, actually, but, not granted. But, joke. <laughs> actually, I don't, I think that they're limestone. I think they're limestone blocks. Yeah, you're probably yes, right. Um, <laughs> But the, the, the point is that, that 
Yeah, and it was a guy in 1940 that was flying over the pyramids in uh, at the on the dawn of the of the spring equinox, and that's an interesting thing. He that's when he saw the eight sides mm-hmm. because there are these slight indentations on the sides of the Great Pyramid that create eight isosceles triangles, which is interesting. Right. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, Pythagoras was all about isosceles triangles. He was I mean, that was his thing. Right. He spent 20 years studying with the priests on the Nile. The Pythagorean theorem isn't his Pythagorean theorem is Egyptian. Right. <laughs> he just learned it. And then he wrote it. He goes, See, this is a this is one of those frustrations going back to our whole story about folklore that I have, where people will go study someone else, they'll learn something, they'll tweak it just a little bit so that it is different, it matches their cultural context, and then they'll say, No, 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 I came up with that. No, you didn't. You went and stole it from somebody else and then rebranded it. That's all that happened. Yeah, right? it reminds me of uh, and, uh, v- vanilla ice. that's a fascinating (laughs) you know at least he tried Millie Vanilli didn't even try anyway yes no no well Vanilla Ice and then in his own way Eminem I mean you know it's it's it goes on and on but uh but yeah but Vanilla Ice definitely did that that's that's there was a song there was a song and he basically stole a sample of it and added a ch and then said oh no he made that not the other band yeah uh it was a queen it was a queen song was it queen under pressure yeah yeah (laughs) under pressure (laughs) yeah under pressure oh i just came up what was that there was a guy what was it? There was a oh uh, the group Art of Noise in the eighties. Uh, they and they said they came up with that. It's the Peter Gunn theme. Like everybody knew it was the Peter <laughs> Gunn theme. It's like you didn't come up with that. Maybe you were high and fell asleep on the couch and heard it on TBS <laughs> late at night, but you did not come up with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway, and I know we kind of got away from the antediluvian thing. <laughs> I, well, but I think, but it's really vanilla ice. It's all about vanilla ice. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's, that's I like mean, all these like other, I said. That's like all these ancient, other ancient cultures. They're not actually uh, their own culture. They're all stemming from Atlantis and remembering the same thing, you know? I, oh, that was, I was going to say earlier, there was a, documentary that i saw once about a guy who had a theory about what atlantis is mm-hmm. um and that it's not what it wasn't one localized place right. that it was a it was it was a whole civilization and that what it was it was the megalithic civilization that yeah. the megalith that the people who were building the stone structures on on malta on you know on um Egypt, uh, Crete, Sumeria, Crete, um, uh, yeah, all of it, all these places where there are the or the megalithic builders, uh, and and that the story of Atlantis 
is an analogy, but it's an analogy of talking about, it's like, how do you, how do you localize into a single story, a cataclysm that happened worldwide to a whole global civilization in a time when nobody understands global, Mm -hmm. right? How do you talk about global when nobody understands global? You say, well, there was a city, there was a city. And it had these rings and there were these colors. The one thing that's, uh, that I always, um, I always caution myself and others to keep in mind whenever you're reading ancient texts or, or allude, you know, studying them, is that anytime you have references to colors, shapes, or numbers, be very careful about reading them literally. Because a lot of times those shapes, colors, and numbers have symbolic meaning in the context of the culture that's writing them down. So, for example, they get very uh, they get very excited about oh the age of Noah or the age of the patriarchs in the in the Old Testament. The problem is the Old Testament was written in Kabbalistic verse, and Kabbalistic verse is a way to use an existing story to encrypt essentially all kinds of other information in the story. So the numbers in the Bible are all related to a very complex system of deeper meaning. So it's, it's, it, I, I'm always cautioning people to get about getting too hung up on the sizes of things and the shapes of things and the ages of things as demonstrated in the Old Testament because it was written. There are mysteries hidden within just the style and method of recording the stories themselves. So um, like, for example, it's entirely possible that the, the numbers associated with the ages of the patriarchs in the Old Testament are actually not related to passage of time at all. They could be star positions. They could be a thousand other things that the Kabbalists at the time, you know, the Kabbalists at the time who were writing it down were encrypting information into this text. We, you know, the perfect example of that, I was thinking about this. I was, I was going to bring this up and I was thinking about it earlier today. Have you ever seen the film Contact? Yes. With Jodie Foster? Mm-hmm. Well, an interesting that film happenstantially makes an in, very interesting point in this direction. So what are the what are the uh, aliens send back? They send back Hitler's speech at the opening of the 1936 Olympic Games, right? <laughs> because it was broadcast into space. Mm-hmm. So and everybody gets all flipped out about the fact they're going, oh, Hitler. Ooh. And they go, no, 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 no. It's because it was one of the earliest broadcasts that was actually effectively sent into space. It was our first message. Really, it was one of our first messages, uh, visual messages into space. So what did they do? They sent that image back to us. They sent that material back to us, but interlaced with a whole bunch of other data that it took them a while to realize that the message they were receiving back was far more powerful than the one that was set out and had 
interlaced with the visual frames had frames of data that were put into the middle, you know, were, were added into it. And that that's a great analogy, in my opinion, for what a lot of these ancient texts actually are, just as what I say about the runes and everything else. Mm. The stories themselves are merely the carriage. They are a way to move information in a way that people will remember it and be able to do something with it down the road. And and uh, and I think that that's really what we've got going on probably in the Old Testament in a like, lot of cases is that it's like putting the medicine in the dog treat. <laughs> I think that's the best. <laughs> that's fantastic. I like that a lot. Yes. Um, because, you know, a spoonful of sugar does help yeah, the medicine go down. Exactly. Um, at least according to Julie Andrews. Um, but the, but the, but no, but I, but I, I think that the same thing is probably true. Cause if you think that that was a method that they were using, we know that there's tremendous information in the Egyptian system. It's just the Egyptian system lasted longer than most of the ancient systems did. It lasted closer to more recent times, which means we have systems of hieroglyphs and we have even evolution of systems of hieroglyphs that we know that they meant something a little different in you know this dynasty than they did in this dynasty. We know that. I mean, it's it's evident. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I did a period of uh, study recently into Egyptian mathematics because I was very curious about mm. you know um, how they structure. And it's very evident, by the way, if you study Egyptian mathematics, that the uh, Roman numeral system actually came from the Egyptian numeral, uh, <laughs> numeral system. Um, boy, talk about the great appropriators. Holy mackerel. The Romans were one of the greatest appropriators outside of the Japanese. But anyway, um, <laughs> but the point is that um, if you look at their number system, it's like every symbol that represents a numeral has another related meaning, right? It's a mm-hmm. frog or it's a, it's a cane of cypress or it's a, a, a spool of rope. Um, but they all have a quantitative value that when you and the way you stack them is exactly the same way that the Romans stacked symbols to create, especially larger numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing very rudimentary studies in um, Egyptian algebra, and they did have algebra. They were they used algebraic systems uh, an algebraic system. And let me tell you, my brain started to hurt. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I was never great at, at algebra anyway, but then trying to like go through and do problems in in uh, Egyptian algebra was the, the, it was it was it was I'm still glad I did it. It was still a great exercise, but it was just you know wow a lot. But anyway, the the point is that we know that these that written language in general. Almost all of written language has ideographic beginnings. And because it has ideographic beginnings, ideographs are representations. They are symbolic representations of something that had a specific importance or meaning in the world. The Chinese started the same way. Egyptian hieroglyphs started the same way. Cuneiform, they now realize, started the same way that all of those kind of abstract, you know, Sumerian text, you know, triangles had proto forms that were shaped like things like fish and, you know, and 
they were ideographic, right? Mm -hmm. So um, chances are Arabic is ideographic. Um, uh, Sanskrit is probably ideographic, you know, in its origins. So, I mean, it makes sense. That's how we talk about the world, you know, dog, right? We say that's a dog, right? So if you're going to talk about what, and we make a sound now, sound, that's a dog. Dog is sound, means that thing over there that's doing those things that dogs do. Do you see what I'm saying? So, so, so the, the, the evolution of written language is an obvious evolution of spoken language and the same kind of assigning meaning, especially abstract meaning to, to things, uh, then related to sounds. Of course, the Egyptian, uh, not the Egyptian, well, the Egyptian system to a degree, but the, um, Chinese system, uh, clearly retains more of that ideographic direct representation. This is, you know, Tien and the symbol of Tien is obviously a mountain with the sky and then the space above the sky and Tien means heaven. Right. So, I mean, it's, it, it, it retains its ideographic, almost animistic root origins, I think. But anyway, the point is that uh, as soon as we get it, it's so, it's so funny that if, if language is structured that way and language works that way, well, why wouldn't storytelling also work that way? Mm. Right. Where, you know, why, why wouldn't storytelling work that way? Where you say, ah, I, I want to teach my child not to stick their hand down the hole. So I'm going to tell them the story and I want them to not be greedy. So I'm going to tell them the story about the Aesop fable about the monkey putting his hand in the jar to pull the olive out or the date out and, and then closing his fist and realizing he can't get his hand out of the top of the jar with his fist closed. So he has to <laughs> let go of the, you know, it's like, we're always, we're always using obvious stories to transmit and transliterate subtleties. So why would that be new? That's uh, why would it be new? And why wouldn't you, you know, have that going back to before Uh, it's true in every culture. Mm -hmm. It is interesting, by the way, I was going to say something about another, another, uh, um, part of the world where people showed up across the ocean and that is uh the Quetzalcoatl story mm-hmm. right that's was the, the bearded white man that showed up that they thought Cortez was the the second coming of right mm-hmm. and then you've got uh Viracocha or Viracoca depending on how you pronounce it in uh that's the in the Andes right the the, the Viracocha the the bringer of knowledge that came and brought and taught the people how to build stuff and make stuff um there was this attempt to preserve and rebuild after this cataclysm, whatever it was. And it is evident from the architecture, from the distances traveled, um, that clearly whoever was doing it had a knowledge that made it possible for them to even do those simple things. Which I think ended up getting preserved in other cultures. I think that if you look at, um, I, I go back to this. In fact, what's one thing I really liked about the series Vikings is they really uh, exposed the brilliance of Viking boat building and shipbuilding. Mm-hmm. Like they really talk about the fact that they came up with a kind of vessel 
that could be wind windborne, could be oared, was uh, low center, center of gravity, was, um, you have a ghost, just close your door. Just kidding. Um, My son. But they were, they were low draft ships that could go up rivers and were built to be flexible so that they could move over the open ocean. This is an incredibly advanced understanding of engineering, right? And you can't tell me it started because, and see, this is the logic. And this is what's weird about the logic. They go, oh, well, we found primitive dugout canoes. Well, yeah, you've got, you've got a bunch of people that were part of a big civilization that understand how to do things, but they have limited technology at their disposal now. They don't have all the, re- it'd be like, um, okay, it would be uh, like in The Road Warrior. That film, The Road Warrior, right? What are they doing? They don't, their GM isn't around anymore. They have to hobble together what they can. They have to have enough knowledge to figure out how to make an internal combustion engine work that's passed down, whether it's a motorcycle, whether it's another kind of vehicle. Um, some people obviously have the intelligence, they figured out how to still uh, drill and refine petroleum in some limited you know, to some limited degree, mm-hmm. um, they're salvaging. Uh, uh, and my guess is, and there was, I love all those, by the way, I love all those uh, dystopian films of the eighties about, about how people would live after the fall of our civilization, you know, where you've got the VW bus that's been, yeah. that's been turned into a horse drawn, you know, uh, uh, cart basically. Mm-hmm. Um and that's what would happen. Eventually, the last pieces, the last vestiges of the fallen civilization would get broken and decay and fall away. And they would adapt what they know to new resources, new tools, um, what the, the, to their circumstances. We are an adaptable species. That's what we do. The reason we are alive is because we are adaptable and we have an incredible ability to transform our environment right to make it uh so that we can oh by the way interesting side note about ragnarok what happens at the end what's one of the the last thing that happens during during ragnarok veder who is odin's son Odin's actual son, by the way, Thor is not Odin's son. Mm-hmm. Balder is not Odin's son. In fact, I would argue that Balder never existed, but that's a whole other topic. Um, I think that Balder is a is a Christianization creation. I don't think Balder was actually part of the original stories because mm-hmm. he doesn't he doesn't make any sense outside of being a Christ like figure. Mm-hmm. His father is the All Father. His mother is takes care of him and dotes over and makes everybody in the world not hurt him, but mistletoe can hurt him. And Loki, who's, and in fact, I think the story of Balder is to try to turn Loki into the devil. Actually, Mm -hmm. I think it's part of turning Loki into Lucifer. But anyway, other topic. But the point is that, uh, um, oh, uh, Vider, that's sorry. What what was I, what story was I telling? Oh yeah. So uh, Vider, what does he do? He takes um, a log, a piece of the trunk of Yggdrasil, which has fallen during the whole Battle of Ragnarok, and he takes 
two humans and puts them in the log and puts them on the other side of the world from Ragnarok so that from the battle so that they will survive the destruction. Hmm. Interesting. It's an it's it's an arc story. Yeah. I mean it's a, it's another arc story. And here's what's interesting. The Battle of Ragnarok is very revealing because what is actually going on in that battle? Forces of nature, which is Loki's brood, are all have all become uncontained and they are moving across the world. The giant, the fire giant of Muspelheim, the and the uh, the fire giant, his name is Surt. And the sons of Surt are marching from the south across the land, burning everything as they go. Jormungand rests free, the world serpent, breaks free from the oceans and comes across the land, spewing poison across the land. Fenris, who's been chasing the sun, swallows the sun and the earth becomes dark. Then what happens? Thor, the god of thunder, gets into a full-on battle with, with the world serpent, and they destroy each other. So thunder and lightning destroy and are destroyed by the, the battle to the death with the world serpent. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm pretty sure that the world serpent is the Gulf Stream. Right. And that the, and that they, the Vikings knew about the Gulf Stream. They knew also that the Gulf Stream controlled the weather. What happens when the weather is disrupted by cataclysm? It all goes to hell. Mm. What happens when you have, when you have uh, cl- massive climate change going on? Huge forest fires. Right? That's one thing that happens. Um, you have, uh, and who else is it? So that's, uh, and then Odin fights Fenris, and they destroy each other. So in other words, and then there's, and right before that, there is a three-year winter, the worst winter ever, and there's no food. And there's, I mean, it goes on and on and on. Well, all of this is a big argument for it being the little ice age, the little ice age after the, that happened because of some kind of a cataclysm that we're pretty sure isn't like an asteroid or not an asteroid, but a comet exploding over Mm -hmm. the ice that caused the ending of the ice age to kind of return for a little while that's Ragnarok. But anyway, the point, my point about, about the Vidar is that the whole point is that these people were put into something to protect them on the other side of the world so that the battle could play out and then the world could recover and then the world would be renewed and the gods would be gone. The gods were dead. Although Vidar is the son of Odin, which means the cycle starts over again. The Allfather never really goes away, hmm. which is interesting for a lot of reasons. But, but the, the, my point is that even in the Norse myth, it's there, this story, and that there is this thing about preserving humanity. That's a recurring thing. Whether you put them underground, put them in a log, put them in a boat, which a log and a boat could be easily cross-correlated as the same kind of thing. Um, 
you know, uh, the fact that the the Anasazi slash Hopi talk about about that whole topic about the ant people coming and taking them underground and protecting them, and that they emerge from the third world into the fourth world. Mm. In other words, the world that they came out into was completely not the world they'd gone under the ground. Here's right? here's a here's another way to look at that Hopi story with the ant people uh, taking them underground. Ooh. Because what do ants build? They build ant mounds uh, where they, you know, push the sand up. And we have, what, everywhere, mounds in America. So maybe they took them into the mounds to protect them from the flood. And then when the flood was over, they were able to come out of the mounds. Hence, like, coming out from on Earth, right? From the earthworks. Well, and you know what? What's interesting is that there could. So the thing about humans that's really interesting historically is that they, for obvious reasons, tend to build their habitation, city civilization along river courses mm-hmm. or on the on ocean shores. <clears throat> so here's an interesting question. Are there any people on the Earth that have cataclysm stories that were nowhere near oceans? that still have a cataclysm story and how did they deal with it? And so you realize that all the cataclysm stories, whether they include a flood or not, could be describing the same cataclysm. Right. Exactly. It's just, you had people that were in different places, you know, like Mm -hmm. my question is this, is there a Mongolian cataclysm story? Is there an, is there an Eskimo cataclysm story? Is there a is there a Central African cataclysm story? Right. I mean, we don't know. Um, I mean, there probably are. D- you Dogon, know, who, right? who, who's what's? Well, that's North Central, which would still be adjacent, generally speaking, to you know um, the Sub-Saharan cultures, mm-hmm. whether it's uh, Ethiopia, Nubia, um, Egypt. Uh, what's it? There was also they they found now um, in the Sudan, Sudan and Chad area, they found cities, you know, mm-hmm. uh, ancient ruins, all kinds of pyramids, um, and there's a, pyramids, but also like cities. Yeah. Also, it's interesting in Central Asia, like northern Iran and into uh, you know the steppes of Central Asia. They're still finding them. They'll find cities that are just, it's just the foundations. But it's amazing how many of those cities are eight-sided. That's Mm -hmm. a very interesting recurring theme. Um, And some of them are very ancient. We were were talking about Black Sea earlier. And Black Sea always perks my ears up uh, because I did a lot of uh, research on following this tribe of dan type of thing everywhere and and kind of after i did that i started to notice dan or dawn or dawn everywhere so i started to Uh look at like suffix words with dan and dawn in it and sudan sudan is one of those uh the the nuna uh donia which is like uh 
part of like Spain, uh, right across from uh, like Morocco in the Pillar of Hercules area from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic. And then you also have, uh, there's another place next to the Black Sea called like, I forget what it's called, but it has Dan in the name. Then you have Denmark, then you have the Tuata de Danan, and then you have, there's just Dan pops up all over the place. And I was listening to a book about the, uh, about Egypt and language. And it said that the Tuat or the Duat, the, the underground, or uh, I, I guess it has several different meanings, but that, that also comes into play with the Tuat, Tuat de Danan. It's the duat. It's that. It's that. I can't even remember what duat means now. Damn it! But, <laughs> but it, it's very interesting. Well, you know what's you find interesting? Dan, you bring and in the Black Sea, you have four rivers of Dan: the Dnieper, the Dinister, uh, the Danube, and the Don. So, the Black Sea seems like it was a central area for trading, and which is why you probably have several thousand ships down underneath there because it was a trading center that was used in anatolia and which why troy was such a big spot because that controlled the flow of traffic in and out of there and if you controlled troy then you controlled the trade kind of like what we see nowadays right, right? Yeah. well it's interesting you should point that out because the uh the gap uh, between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea is called the Dardanelles. That's it's the Dardanelles, which is interesting because it's. But you know, the Danube is is an interesting river. Of course, it's it was the highway of Europe, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it was that was the main trade river. What's interesting though is that Danu, the goddess Danu, yep, which is where the Tuatha de Danann come from. They are the god. They are the people of of the goddess Danu. Mm -hmm. Danu means river means river yeah yeah so the they sell so down the river me <laughs> well what it tells me is that the tawatha de Danan, uh came up the danube from across they came across europe and they probably went to Brittany, and then went across to ireland and they were seafaring people mm -hmm. um it is interesting, too, to note that the, the three main ancient populations of Ireland that we know about, one is the, is the, uh, the Fomorians, and they are likely the original inhabitants when it was a peninsula before it was an island. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, and then you have the Firbolg, <clears throat> which means fur bag. The fur and bag. we know that the Firbolg, yeah, Firbolg were the, um, they were slaves or prisoners of some kind in the in the country of thrace or mm -hmm. trace or Thrace or dracia which means gold by the way um, um which is right there at the you know at the mouth of the danube and that they escaped and followed the danube up across and then went using some kind of primitive watercraft got to ireland mm -hmm. and then of course you have the tuatha de Danann who came in ships they came in ships i mean it's it's noted that they came in ships it's in the right. it's in the stories that they came in ships and then they got into huge fights with the fomorians now here's a weird part though 
there are suggestions that the Tawatha de Danan actually showed up before the end of the Ice Age mm. in Ireland. Because the land of the Fomorians was the land west of Ireland. Which means it would have had to have been exposed. We know people lived out there. We know that the ancient nation of High Brazil was out there. High Brazil, yeah. Um, and that when the waters rose, the it was called the land beneath the waves, the land of Tirnanog, right? The land, the land that would rise up again one day. Let me uh, and the Fomorians. Huh? Go ahead, finish that. Well, uh, and the and the um, Fomorians. the Fomorians were from there, and they would come from beneath the sea. And they were—it's interesting—they had darker skin, they had big, wild eyes, and they fought ferociously. They were more primitive, mm -hmm. right? Well, now they know, based on genetics, uh, DNA research in the British Isles, that there were proto hominids there there were hominids of some kind cheddar man in particular that uh were swarthier probably based on their their dna composition they had dark yep. hair and that everything suggests that these other people that showed up the tuatha de Danann, were blonde probably um they were they were fair of skin they were light of eye and they got into some nasty ass fights with the Fomorians. Some of the biggest battles uh, were between them and then the Firbolg as well. And it was all about dominance uh, mm -hmm. of that area. And it's interesting because all of it seems to point to a time when there might have been some water like between Ireland and and you know the Isle of Man that area. There might have been like a a, a channel there, mm -hmm. but it really suggests that <clears throat> this was when it was all a peninsula before the water rose. And we know that people were there. And how do they talk about the Tuatha de Danann? They, they say that they're high spiritual beings or something like that, right? That they're kind of ghosty well, or something weird. They, they were probably, probably akin to the way that Tolkien described the elves is my guess that's but it's interesting because if you if you the one thing okay so let's just talk about the sumerians just a second longer because the sumerians are a strange group we know very little about them they were a very small population that just ended up creating a um they they basically created a civilization that was mainly peopled by Akkadians, who were the the kind of Semitic people that already lived there when the when the Sumerians showed up in the boats, and when they when they find Sumerian relics, not the tablets, not the writing, but when they find the 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 actual votives, they're very odd because they're almost always carved out of white alabaster. Mm -hmm. They very often have blue lapis lazuli. Uh, inlaid in the eyes and their clothing if you look at the clothing on these figures it's very similar to viking clothing like basic early early viking clothing yeah you know i was going to say something uh about that too is 
is they talk about them being scaly and stuff or having scaly skin or being serpent people. What if they just had chain mail uh, type of uh, garb on and they didn't recognize it because they weren't familiar with it. So they thought they were scaly or people, or maybe they had leather that was like, like roof tile, you know, had overlapping leather on, and then that looked like scaly. And so they thought they were the serpent people. Uh, I wanted to read, uh, look, look at depictions. Say, look at depictions of Krishna's battle armor. Yeah. Does it look like that? Like samurai style. It's, well, it's got that. It's got that. Well, I mean, it looks very Indian, you know. It's probably mm-hmm. gone through stylized morph- morphing, but it's pretty clear that when you hear the stories, when they the stories of of Krishna and Arjuna or 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 uh, uh, Rama, right from the Ramayana, mm-hmm. they're wearing battle armor that would have to be flexible, which means it would have to be articulated because mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's either solid ch- breastplates or it's articulated. If it's articulated, it's little, usually little bits of metal that are attached to fabric or, or, um, you know, uh, leather Shining or mesh serpents. of some kind. Right. And they would be ferocious. They would be different. They would be taller. Probably they would mm-hmm. be of larger. Bit. <clears throat> so my, what, one of my questions for the longest time is has been um, who really were the who were the Sumerians? Were they the same people that, that were they the Quetzalcoatl? Were they the the Tuatapedanan? Were they the same people yeah. that had walked around and um, and that they were you know golden of hair, fair of skin, blue of eyes, and of course that that rubs everybody the wrong way this, now because of identity politics and blah blah blah, but. This Go gets ahead. fun. This right. gets fun for me because this is a. I like to speculate on this idea. Uh, but I want to read this of uh, the the duat definition, which is the duat is the realm of the dead in ancient Egyptian mythology. It has been represented in hieroglyphs as a star in a circle. The god Osiris was believed to be the lord of the underworld. He was the first mummy as uh, depicted in the Osiris myth, as he personified rebirth and life after death. So if he personifies life after death, it has duat symbology, and you have the Tuatha De Danannan, and then you have these highly spiritual beings uh, that are like almost ghostly in presence and have this ominous presence about them. It kind of fits in very interestingly. So when we get into the Sumerian stuff and who are the Sumerians and who are these... I kind of have this idea of, you know, it's not well thought out. It's just kind of my ramblings and my thoughts, my ideas, is that there was a civilization in the north and there's a civilization in the south. And the civilization in the south was Mu or Antarctica, which is uh, Terra del Fuego, right? So fire and ice, right? Right. So this kind of goes into that same idea. but Oh, interesting. Mu was uh, the Antarctica, and then Mu, because of the tilt, Mu suffered a devastation also. It lost people, so they moved up into Australia, the Philippines, um, and into what is known as China now, and 
and then moved into Sumeria and those types of areas. And then you have the North Atlanteans that come down from the north. So you have this meeting of the fire and the ice. And this is the, the story of the Great War. And then uh, so even in Sumeria, you have Mu in the name, right? Um, you also have the idea of Poseidon creating Atlantis, but then Atlas uh, being the ruler of Atlantis and kicking out Neptune, who was the founder, because Neptune and uh, Atlas started to have disagreements and having fights and wars with each other. And this is why you have the Nuna and the Sumerians fighting against each other because the, the Nuna are the sons of um, Atlas and the Sumerians are basically the people from uh, Neptune. After, after he got kicked out, he kind of went into, after the flood happened there, it kind of dispersed and he went up into these northern places, uh, Australia and Philippines and whatnot. And then you have the meeting of the two so that's why Mu and uh, Atlantis get called like the same thing. It's because they both originated from the same place, but dispersed into different directions. And then as civilization got bigger, they ended up meeting in Midgard, the middle, the middle ring of Earth, and then having the Great War. Interesting. So that's kind of how I how I've kind of separated it out a little bit just through languages and, and whatnot. And I think that the whole Balder story is possibly the Enlil story and Jesus and all of that stuff. Also, it's all because with the Jewish religions is they kind of take part of this one and that one and this one and this one, and then crammed it all together. They, they forced several gods into one God to make it you know omnipotent or whatever so that for whatever reason laziness to, or control however you want to look at it i don't i don't want to worship a god of thunder and a god of the sea i just want both of them to be the same god poo uh so i kind of they they kind of took from different parts and even in the all the characters from from the, like the biblical tales come from Sumeria, they come from Ur, they come from Egypt, they come from all these other different places, and then that's what forms the narrative for the Bible. So, yeah, I think, you know, that's where we get these types of different ideas, and that's why you have the Eastern culture being uh, the spiritual culture, and then you have actually the Northern culture being more of a materialistic culture in this idea because then you have the two meeting but then they kind of split in a way and then they they flip and then the southern becomes the material and the northern becomes the high culture so it's it's kind of a, a weird weird idea but because it seems like the, from the north came the technology and the innovation of agriculture and from uh these uh technological advances uh masonry and everything but then you have like this spiritual aspect in the east right of all these spiritual woo stuff that we see out here as 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 woo woo or devil worshiping by the christians and like yoga and magical practices and uh 
uh, plant uh, medicines and stuff like that. But then you, it, it's interesting because then you have a flip and it seems like it flips and then the, the spiritual side becomes the materialistic and then the, the materialistic becomes the spiritual. So I, I haven't well, quite it, figured it all out in a <laughs> super good uh, smoothness, but that's kind of what I've started to see anyway. Well, it's interesting too that there are very different models of civilization. And it, it's it's kind of, so there's a really, it just everything you just said made me think of like 1500 different things. But <laughs> one, one, of the, one of the things was, of course, Poseidon, um, which is interesting because there's a, there was a whole discussion about Poseidon, who was the patron deity of Troy. Mm. If you know this, but Poseidon was the patron deity of Troy. And what's interesting is Poseidon is, of course, connected to the ocean. Of course, Neptune is, is the Roman version of Poseidon. Yeah, same thing. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, basically, the Romans, I said, like I said, were great appropriators. They, <laughs> they, they would say, ah, oh, yes. Yes, uh, Zeus. No, no, Jupiter. We're going to say Jupiter, even though Zeus was there first. You know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's really interesting. There's almost like this low self-esteem in new civilizations where they say, "Well, we're going to take everything you have, but we're going to rename it and make it ours because you know we're not okay. We want to make sure that you understand that we're running our own show." So <laughs> it's just very weird. Um, um, like uh, uh, Enlil becoming LL in Babylon too. You know, it's yeah. just it's, it's like well, we're going to recognize that, that Enlil is here and Enlil exists, and we're going to worship Enlil, but we're going to change the name. And the story because... of Enlil is very similar to the story of Baldur, also in the in the way that Enki, or I think it's actually Marduk, actually puts a hit out on Enlil and has somebody else actually kill him for him. It's the same with like Loki has somebody else that doesn't really understand what they're doing, right? He has the blind uh, person shoot the arrow and he guides the arrow into Balder. Whereas like in, in the Babylonian tale, it's like Marduk hires this guy to, to kill Enlil for him and he doesn't really get his hands dirty. But it's, a, it, it's this mischievous way also. Right. <clears throat> Well, exactly. There's this, there's, well, and it's also the, the necessity. Um, and again, I think that goes into a social order thing to a degree, which is um, establishing moral behavior from immoral behavior. Uh, there has to be an antagonist if you're going to have a protagonist. And it just doesn't work. You can't just have all protagonists because nobody will believe that. That's why the first Matrix failed. Because everything was good all the time. You have to have difficulty and challenge and contrast. You have to have contrast. Um, the Matrix is just women up to their tricks. <laughs> oh, man, I could so get into that, but I won't. Um, but uh, um, the Matrix. <laughs> There's so there's so much in the contemporary landscape that we could so many um, allegorical stories we can tell. <laughs> yeah, we about. won't go there. We have anyway, a lot of female. We listeners. won't go there. No, I love women. Yes, <laughs> we do. Oh, no, I mean, don't don't kill us. Yeah. Um, so no, me too. Um, 
but uh, lifelong experience of, of uh, shall we say, interrelating with women um, has developed perspectives. That's that. that <laughs> I'm going to leave that there. Yeah. Um, because there are certain consistencies um, <laughs> that, that seem to be even recorded in the myths. Freya. It, they would say the same about as us, a character. So. Oh, yeah. of course. Well, yes. I mean, the truth is, we are. We are. Um, we we all do seem to have the same uh, fundamental biological construct, uh, which is that there are certain ways that that we just have uh, developed biologically to be, and uh, it tends to create certain base reactions and behaviors that are consistent. I'm going to leave that right there. I think that <laughs> is very very well said, and that goes for both sexes or all sexes, however you guys want to take that. That's what I'm that. saying. No, I was talking about. Yeah, um, I uh, no, I was trying to be a politician there, where I said yeah. uh, <laughs> everything without saying. Um, Solid. Don't kill me. Um, so, vote for uh, what was I going to say about uh, what? Vote for Raven. Don't vote for me. That's right. Because, <laughs> because, uh, no, don't. Because the last thing I'd actually want to be is in charge. Um, <laughs> That it really, it's very funny. Anytime I, I hear a person that goes, oh, I want to be a president one day, I go, why? No, don't. <laughs> yeah. no, you don't. Why would you want to be the president? You know, it's like, I want to be the king of the world. Why? Do you see what happens to kings of the world? Anyway, <laughs> they have no life. When you're on top of the um, mountain, everybody wants to take you down from the top of the mountain. That's right. What is What do they say? It's... Uh, Oh, I can't remember now. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, so going back to what we were talking about before we got caught up in that. Yes, yeah, uh, Atlantis, Moo, civilizations. Well, yeah, but no, I was saying um, what was interesting. Well, one, oh, okay, Poseidon, that's what I was saying. So uh, we, we tend to think of Poseidon and we associate Poseidon with the ocean, mm -hmm. right? He's the god of the sea, but he was also the god of both horses and earthquakes, mm. which is one of the reasons uh, they suspect that he was the patron deity of Troy, because that region is frequently racked with earthquakes, and they were famous. In fact, that area of, of the world is still famous for breeding some of the best horses in the world, like the greatest... Uh, can I yeah, say, right. uh, if you have like an army of people riding horses, the you're going to be able to hear that and feel that as like the earth trembling beneath your feet if they're coming for you, you know, so that the whole earthquake thing could not necessarily be the earth shaking, but actually be the earth shaking because of the stampede of the horses and that army coming toward you. I'm just throwing that out. There. And by the by the way, that's also the sixth rune. The horse. The sixth rune in the strand is no, is redo, which is the sound. It's it's a sound of many horses running. Ah. That's what that rune means. Redo. And it and it it it's the it's it's like you know riding a horse, but the sound of many horses running, mm. and it's got a parallel to thunder. earthquakes. It's also got a parallel to thunder, yeah, and lightning, mm -hmm. right? Makes um, sense. And it's it's the fifth rune in the six six runes, which make up the first six runes of every single rune strand. 
So there's something about that power. And yeah, it's funny wrong. because before right now, I've never thought about the earthquake connection. Mm-hmm. I've always thought about it in terms of thunder because thunder and storm mm-hmm. because of lightning and fire, because the next rune is fire. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the place I was operating from for a long time, and I still am, is that fire was the gift of the gods, right? Sort of. And it's interesting because the rune, well, no, it was the gift of the gods because uh, whether it's Prometheus stealing the fire and bringing it to people, whether it's Raven stealing the fire from his uncle. Um, it was stolen from the fire gods, was, not given by the gods. Oh. But it was stolen because now let, let me just break this into a direct activity. <laughs> lightning, lightning hits a tree, lights uh, it on fire. Now, most of those burn out or they start for as far as they burn out. But a wily human says, I can capture a little bit of that and keep it going. Therefore, I have, in fact, captured the gift of the gods, which is the sixth rune, which is fire. And what is that? Fire, which is kaun or kain depending on, you know, Kaunas, Kain, Kin, mm-hmm. uh, is all related root to the word K-Y-N, and K-Y-N is kindling, kinter, kint, kind. It all relates to family, hearth, and home. Mm. All of it does. It, and, and so what it is is that once you've captured the fire, that becomes the ability to build a tribe or a band around, right? You have, you have a hearth. You're welcome at my fire. Like the, the hospitality, all these things that are core human things about about how that's, you stay alive. A, that's the seventh one. That's the sixth room. Oh, that's the sixth. Is six, and the first six are the only ones that are always consistent in terms of order. Um, right? It's it's. F U T H F U T H ah er and ka so it's futar. Can we go through what the how many runes are there total? Um, the the problem with the runes is that there are depend culturally they change. There have been rune rune strings that are as few as sixteen. There have been times when it's been more. The runes, the 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 sixteen are the twig runes, and they're they're very old and they're very limited. Like they weren't used; they were used for a short period of time, mm-hmm. and they're almost like they're almost like it's possible that they were just one person's idea that their own thing that they came up with um, that just happened to get preserved. But the point is that the average strand is twenty four. Okay, the so average the, strand. The sixth is fire, hearth, and home. Kin, kinder, kin, kinter. So it's children, kinder, like kindling. That's the sixth. Um, okay. All the root root words of, of that are there. And the fifth one was Rodan. Is or? is Rodan, and then there's and then there's Godzilla, and then I'm kidding. <laughs> what is um, it? Mothra. Um, it's it's. It's the word. Our word "raid" actually comes from this word. It's it's "rado," 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 and it's uh, "rado," and it's okay. um, and it basically is the. It is mini. It's like a herd of horses, but it's the sound of many horses. Okay, running. So it's it's both things together, which is interesting because it ties it into that whole Poseidon kind of idea 
mm-hmm. which is the earthquake and the and that there was a connection between the horses, which is interesting to think. This is just a weird hypothetical thing. Imagine if the same cultural ideas had happened in North America, we wouldn't be associated with horses. It'd be with probably with bison oh, yeah. because of the, the huge herds of bison. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, the point of that story was, oh, I just, just when you said that about, you were talking about Poseidon and I remembered the horse thing and I was like, oh, I'm going to have to go back and look at the horse rune itself. Cause there is a horse rune. That's also Equaz. the horse is, uh, also one of the flags of the tribe of Dan and it has a relation to Atlantis and then also back to Odin. Which, yeah, and you know what's interesting about Odin? I'm even going to go out on a leap here. I'm going to make a big leap <laughs> and suggest that Odin is a post-cataclysm deity mm. that replaced a pre-cataclysm deity with the same qualities, but that was was either forgotten or wiped out or, or like was maybe worshiped, but it was only the remnants and it was someone. I think a lot of the Norse deities, and this may be true of other systems too. Polytheism is a strange thing because on one hand, polytheism does sort of uh, suggest that there are multiple forces in the world and that people recognized multiple forces in the world, right? That there was rivers and there were mountains and there were animals and there were different things and that each one of those had its own. I mean, there's a certain logic to that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a goddess of the grain. Why? Because you want to worship her. Why? Because you want grain because you don't want to starve. Okay. You want the crop to work. And there's a certain basic mechanical logic to that. But what if that's not what's going on at all? What if what's going on is that a lot of these deities were simply the people that had that knowledge who survived the cataclysm, who were then kind of like, uh, to put it in a Catholic context, they were canonized, right? Afterwards, you know, maybe maybe uh, Voltan was, uh, in fact, just happened to be the dude that that had enough knowledge so and leadership skills and charisma to pull the pull the shit together afterwards and said, okay, we're going to start over and we're going to do this. And he was the leader. And he became the embodiment, as we see in the uh, Chinese emperor, and as we see in the pharaohs, and we see in others, that they are the avatar. That's the one thing I love about Hinduism is I think that Hinduism in many ways has preserved the 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 most information pre-cataclysm mm. especially the mechanics of of their hierarchies and their structures and their worship and their temples because all you you don't have to look very far to go vishnu shiva brahma and go and cuz shiva's the the creator destroyer the dancer creator destroyer right and then you've got Vishnu, who's the sustainer. And then you have Brahma, who's the, the father. Well, that's on Enlil and Enki. 
-hmm. It's literally the exact same triad, but translated into another part of the world, which my argument would be that it's very possible. Now, here's the thing. This is where we get into a tricky area that could get me in a lot of trouble, but fuck it, I don't care. Get me, come and get me. Um, and that is this. There is a lot of evidence to suggest that the Indians, the Indian civilization, not the Indians all as a whole, but the Indian civilization is not from India. The people who actually established the culture of India are not from India. Mm -hmm. They were, there was a, a, there was the Indian subcontinent. It was there. There were people who lived there that were living in the forest and were fairly primitive who then another group of people showed up and civilized them this, and brought with them a system. This kind of gets into the Kumari Kandam idea of, of a civilization being between uh, Africa and Australia and uh, China and then a flood happening and them all going into the next closest you know, civil, uh, land area, which was that area of India and same with the Philippines exactly. going into China and saying this, this whole idea of the Mu civilization from the Pacific going in to that, being forced into that area because they lost their homes. And it is interesting to note that we know that there were two principal ethnic groups amongst the Sumerians. Mm -hmm. Apart from the Akkadians, there were a group that inhabited the north, uh, which were called the Blackheads. And we know they were called the Blackheads. And we know that there was a group that uh, inhabited the southern of this, because you realize Samaria is not a place. Samaria is a system of, of city-states. There was Sumer, there was Ur, there was uh, Uruk, there was uh, Nineveh. There, there were these different cities that were all generally culturally related, but they very were in a very like vulnerable Egypt. place. Right. Uh, although Egypt seemed to become ultimately more unified in the long run. Mm -hmm. um, but there was an upper and lower at one point before they became unified. Right. There was the upper and lower. And then, of course, there came a point when they were unified. And then you see the crowns of upper and lower mm -hmm. as represented on the pharaohs together jointly. Mm -hmm. uh, after that point. <laughs> so the thing about the Sumerians, is we know that some of them had black hair because that's recorded. We also know that some of them had golden hair, mm -hmm. which is interesting to note. So there were golden haired Sumerians and black haired Sumerians. And the question is, when the Akkadians under Sargon, when they finally invaded and, and conquered Samaria, when Sargon did, we know that the Sumerians fled. There were people who fled. And it's interesting because when you go into ancient Armenia before the Turkic invasions, before when the ancient Armenians actually had a lot in common with the Sumerians. There were a lot of things, but they were clearly a very a much smaller, diminished tribal culture in the mountains, and they were fierce warriors, fierce warriors. Um, 
And then all of a sudden you've got, you know, another group of people, the, the Laplanders up in Finland, the Sami, who many of them, they don't know where they came from. These are people that ethnically, they do not know where they came from. It is unclear. They are not related to the, to the Scandinavians. They are clearly Caucasian, but they are not um, of the same ethnic stock. They speak a different language. They've always spoken a different language, and there are remnants of other places in the world. There are remnants in their language of other places in the world. So it's they're a very weird anomaly. Mm-hmm. Um, who uh, and it's interesting because this, this is something I was thinking about too. Um, are you familiar with Indra and Agni? No. So Indra and Agni um, feature pretty prominently in the Rig Veda. Um, the, which is the oldest, you know, of those texts. And it's interesting how they had battles. In fact, the story of Manu, who was the one that supposedly built the boat in the, in the Hindu mythology, um, is related to the story of, Igni, of, of Agni, Indra and Agni. And there are suggestions that the Zoroastrian religion had to a degree some of its origins in the Rig Veda and in the Indra and Agni story. And I was thinking about this the other day. I said, you know, especially if I if I if I if I had the ability to sit down with you and Dan or you and Roman in person, <laughs> like we could sit down and I could and I could take you through the root everything with the runes it's kind of hard to do this way but i i could do it if i was in your presence right because i could point things and draw things um it's interesting that the rune for fire there seems to be this bisection this vertical bisection in this grid and there seems to be a very prominently east or right side to it and and a west or left side to it and the rune characters themselves predominantly face the east. They're either centralized or they're east. But there are a few that are west, and fire is one of them, oddly enough, that is like that goes y. like this. Like the letter Y? Yeah, it has like this, and it splits, right? But then sometimes it's uh, tilted, so it looks more like the Y shape. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got you. Yeah. Um, and there are a few runes that are on both sides. Mm-hmm. The Alcus rune is a good example. Um, there are a couple that are double stave runes that are on both sides of that meridian as well. But the point is that the fire rune is on the left side. It's on the west side which suggests that it's cut off from the east side. The east side is where the gods are. It's where the giants are. It's where the banner are. All of that is on the east side. But the west side is where fire, and it's only a little thing, and it's only by itself, and it's not connected to anything else. I think that's, the, that's a symbol of the captured fire. I think that's why it's isolated. It's saying now the fire is in the world. See, everything else takes it outside of Midgard. This says it's only in Midgard. Fire is in Midgard. Well, think about this. What is one of the central points, the central Ahura Mazda, right? The the Persian religion, Ahura Mazda. Um, One of the central whole worship 
temple things that, that the Zoroastrians do is they have an eternal flame. Many of those ancient temples in, in that part of the world have fires that have been burning uninterrupted since the Middle Ages or earlier. They've mm -hmm. literally kept the same fire going. Him's and I went, well, torch. yes, the eternal flame. And we have this thing about the eternal flame, the flame that burns without ending, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there, um, I think, uh, what is it? Supposedly there's an eternal flame over JFK's grave. There, they have mm -hmm. an eternal flame that burns forever, you know, until the gas gets shut off. Um, it's definitely a petroleum, a petroleum era, uh, uh memorial because it'll mm. be very hard to keep it going. There isn't natural gas to keep it going. <laughs> um, but anyway, but the point is that the, you have the, uh, the, uh, the, the captured fire. And I was like, that is really interesting. It's made me, ah, man, this, this whole horse uh, horse and and uh, earthquake thing is just like it's it's rattling around in this part of my brain right now. It's just going, like, <laughs> hmm, that's really fascinating. Um, but one thing I was going to say too about the um, about Indian mythology, and it kind of goes back to what you were alluding to with the Tuatha De Danann, even with Quetzalcoatl, with Viracocha, with all of these. Um, <clears throat> There is an interesting connection to my blue friends. Oh. And that is that, first of all, a lot of the Hindu deities are blue. Yep. A number of them are blue, especially avatars of Vishnu, mm -hmm. benevolent Vishnu, blue, right? Um, and I thought of what you, what you were saying about the Tuatha De Danann. They were described as ethereal or almost... Uh, almost spiritual right yeah but mm. these beings um my beings when they showed up to me they changed form three times in the course of my first experience with them or second experience with them so maybe we're all talking about the same beings yeah they're beings that can change their appearance but they do appear to be blue hmm yeah. You're right. <clears throat> so <clears throat> maybe that's not an accident and maybe they aren't blue like Krishna was blue. But Krishna also had a thing for for the the, the young women that herded goats in the pasture. He had quite a thing for them, actually. He had quite a party, apparently, on one night. Anyway, um, but he'd go out there, the the what are they called? The the guppies. I don't know. The, the Guptis? Guptis. Anyway, but the point is that that um, there is also this connection between the blue, the blue beings mm -hmm. and the dissemination of information. Mm. They are carriers of, of culture. If you think about colors, again, back to colors, the blue would be almost... Uh, be like the sixth chakra right before uh purple before the crown uh well the, or the the throat, the throat chakra is yeah, the throat chakra the color probably. which is communication it's all so about it's communication fifth, the fifth one yep yeah, yeah and that's actually um 
that's actually a, a conclusion that I, well, not a conclusion. It's something that I've been wondering about is the reason they appeared that color to me is because they were communicating. That's why they were that color. And you said that they have the most, uh, like, uh, detailed stories too of, of ongoings. So maybe that's another connection to the fact that they have so many good, have so many stories about these other times that they were the communicators and that's why they're represented as blue and they're ethereal or the higher vibration in a way so because most of the time we see everything as uh lower chakra red as you know bad and then green green is like the heartland that's earth so they're above the earth. Yeah. Yep. Well, and what's interesting, if you even go to Egypt, Osiris is often depicted as blue green. Yeah, he's blue or green. In color. Yeah. Blue or green. And they say, oh, it's the color of the dead. I go, no, 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 no. It's a color of uh, what? It's a color of communication. It's yeah. a color of carrier of information, which, of course, and then, of course, the... Um, the the duot is often when it's in painted is painted as a blue as a as mm. a as an almost an azure or cerulean blue in the monuments so um and it's uh, interesting too that's um, azul and we know what as is right because you talked about that too yep azur <laughs> the az the azur the azur well that sky it's all it comes back to the sky over and over again which is interesting right that they come from that. And this is something else that I find fascinating. Now, again, I can make that pragmatic leap and say, of course, when you are a human experiencing things on the planet, the sky is one of the most bizarre, like if you didn't know anything that was going on, all you saw was the sky change, things move through the sky, clouds move through the sky, there were stars, there are moons, there are comets, there are meteors, Things fall from the sky, and the sky is a great mystery. I can see why, like I said, speaking very strictly in a pragmatic way, why it would end up having this great significance. But there's the other part of me that also says, okay, but how did teachers come from the sky? How did nature, how did not nature, how did teachers come from the sky? How did, you know, what is it? What, is, what does Anunnaki mean? Those who came that from, word, what those who came down, those yeah. who came down. So, so clearly, um, there is, there is more. I thought it was, it's interesting too that, that the Egyptian, Egyptians views, viewed meteors as the semen of the gods. I always mm. found that that's just been a fascinating idea that they were recognizing things falling from the sky as um seeds oh, basically yeah, seeds yeah that's what i think earth is an egg and the the comets are seeds sperm cosmic sperm and it kind of makes you go makes you really not want to be outside <laughs> when that's <going. laughs> so can, can i tell you an unrelated piece of trivia that was related to that but has nothing to do with that really quick <laughs> Yeah, one more thing, uh, because we've been going on uh, th three hours and 15 minutes. And uh, Jeez. okay, 
need to wrap it well, up. Well, so. I'll, I'll, I'll make this quick. It was just a funny thing. So, um, <laughs> uh, no, it's about, it's about fake eyelashes. Okay. So <laughs> I read this whole thing about fake eyelashes, where they came, where, wh- why, why women wear fake eyelashes and where that came from. Mm-hmm. And what that is, is that there was a woman who ran a brothel who wanted to come up with a way for women to not get jizz in their eyes. So she came up with fake eyelashes to catch it. So the reason that makes me laugh is it makes me look at every single woman now that wears fake eyelashes. I go, yeah, I know why you're doing it. (laughs) But apparently it's a a true story. That's why they came. She came up with them. It was a way to stop it from getting in their eyes. (laughs) I think she was French, you know, leave it to the French. Oh, man. Um, a white flag. But anyway, yeah. So <laughs> um, anyway, you know, I don't know. If, I don't know if we actually went everywhere we were going to, we wanted to go. Um, it, I, I, it's always interesting to have Roman here too, because he yeah. <laughs> has other thought processes. But yeah, yeah, generally speaking, sure. my I'll make a final summation statement. And that is that I do believe that there was a civilization during the Ice Age. Yeah, I believe that um, we're all we're ever going to have, unless we could drain the oceans, is a lot of conjecture about it. It's it's all uh, trying to piece it together from what we have, you know, the what's around and what we find, um, and what has been preserved through folklore, among other things. But it's pretty evident that it was there. It was pretty evident that it was fairly sophisticated because. There are um, there's just too much architecture from the megalithic cultures to 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 Peru, to Egypt, um, actually, even to aspects of China, India. There's just too much information out there that says that we are standing on we are standing on the foundations of giants and that we are, in fact, for all of our high technology now. We quite possibly are some of the dumbest people that have ever existed on the planet. We're we're just yeah. we're we're not we're not really that bright. And all we've all we've been doing for the last ten thousand years is trying to figure out how to bring civilization civilization back to what it was without even knowing that that's what we're doing or really even knowing what the goals or what, because it it was so completely destroyed. It was so completely wiped out that this is all just a pantomime. We are, we are literally trying to resurrect a ghost and we've been trying to do that for thousands of years. Um, And we've gotten kind of to a point, but if you notice something, It's all kind of soulless now. Hmm. There's this, there is this, there is this. I look out and I go, it's a facade. It's a facade of a facade. The the truth is it's a facade of 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 a facade. Exactly. I mean, it's almost it's almost Blavatskyan. You know, it's like it's like what what root race age are we in? You know, um, and you know, and the thing is, I, I there are a lot of things that she says that I kind of go, okay, yeah. But 
this is Madame Blavatsky, you know, theosophy. There's a lot that she kind of goes on about that I go, okay. But there are things, I think there are, there are truths in what she, what she saw and what she had to say and what she, what she found. I think there are truths in it. Um, and here's the truth. This is what I think is the truth. I think the memory of all of this is buried inside of us. I think we carry this memory in our subconscious, in our DNA, in our family lines. And I think that what happens is that from time to time it comes out and there are people who are more aware of that voice than, than others. And, um, what, when I be aware, I mean, we can hear a voice. We, there's just something that doesn't make sense. We ask questions, you know, mm-hmm. which, you know, can get you, get you crucified or burned or, or yeah. ripped apart or whatever. I think it's a uh, true of all life. I mean, even if you look at your own life cycle, even in as old as you are, or as old as I am, what do we still do? We still try to repeat our earliest history that we re- recall. We try to, we still think we're, that same teenage kid or same 20 year old or whatever. And we still try some, even their adulthood, try to live out those same things uh, through that, or they relive the trauma that had happened in those times. Um, So I think in a way we're, we're kind of in our late stages of humanity, not really late, but mid mid middle-aged and we're trying to relive what once happened in our, in our past and not even recognize it or realize it, you know, we need to see a ancient therapist. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. That's what we are. We're rising from the ashes and we're your ancient therapy. I think that's fantastic. I think you're absolutely (laughs) right. And in fact, honestly, isn't that what these ancient stories are? Yeah. They are the ancient therapists. They That's are. what they are. They're to help so, you, well, you get along. It, well, I appreciate the, the conversation as always, Dan. It's fantastic. Yeah, thanks, um, Raven. I learn a little more about you every time we talk, <laughs> um, learn more things. Um, I love your exploration of your name. I think that's fan- I think that's just marvelous. I, I, I yeah. Dan, regardless, the Dan and the Anunnaki, put it together, Dan Anunnaki. Yep, <laughs> Dan Anunnaki. I love it. I love it. That's well, and I here I am, uh, here I am stealing shit from the gods and and bringing it, uh, bringing it down. <laughs> That's what I do. You do your thing. I do mine. Um, well, uh, please uh, give my regards to Roman and yeah. and uh, thank you so much for the time. And it's always a pleasure. All right. Yeah. Thank you, man. I appreciate your time also. And it's uh, it was great to have a super long conversation. Uh, it, you know, they don't happen uh, too often, especially one-on-ones because I'm usually with Roman. So uh, I, 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 he always takes questions from me or goes on different tangents and I don't get to stay on the one thing, but I love him anyway. Love you, Roman. Love you, Fire Tribe. If you're not down with that, wake up. Yeah.